You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about the beast below, because Lee's joined us this week, so you don't have to. Simon. Hello, I'm Lee. And I'm JR. And Lee's a bit confused because we've now decided... Uh, no, hang on a second. Not we've decided, but Simon decided, <laughs> in collusion with Matt, that we were now doing this in alphabetical order of our surnames rather than our first names. Um, just so you could get him first. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, Simon thought, he was, Simon thought he was going to get him first, but then <laughs> Matt pointed out that his surname comes before Simon. He took me back to school, where I was one of the first being read out in the register. So. <clears throat> but I don't mind, because it means I go last. And as the most important person here, first, last, whatever, it's all the same. You are the beast below. No, Lee's the beast below. The last person always gets murdered, though, right? In the Ooh, that's tunnel. A, that's really <laughs> ominous. Oh, that no. sounds like a genuine threat. Or was it the first person? <laughs> well, in Agatha Christie, the last person is the one person left alive, isn't it? Unless it's um, ten little Indians. What about if you're in a corridor? How does Final Destination work? <laughs> Have you ever that's seen Final Destination? Random. I love that film. Oh, it's great. Mm. Have you seen the sequels? I think I saw the first one. It was far better than I thought it was going to be. Which is the one with the roller coaster? Is that the sequel or the third? third I is think that the third? Third. I've not seen the third. Uh, okay. Second yeah. is the car crash. Oh, so the first is the aeroplanes. Talking of yeah, car, car crashes, crash. blimey, yeah. did I see a bad film this week? Shall I talk about it later? No, tell us about it now, since you've brought it out. Well, uh, quite a few people might have seen it. Simon Pegg's oh, when ab- you... Absolutely Anything. Have you ever seen oh, that no. film? No, no, I haven't seen that. God. Written and directed by Terry Jones. Is it the one with all the Hold all the pythons in it yeah. playing aliens? Yeah. yeah. Simon Pegg, Robin Williams, all mm-hmm. these names. And my God, it's a mess. Oh, I've never it's even heard of it. It's popped up it? on Netflix and I was almost tempted to watch it yesterday. Yeah. Things Simon Pegg does, which isn't written by Simon Pegg and directed by Edgar Wright, don't tend to be great. No. Paul was okay. Paul was yeah, Paul, Paul, okay, Paul, but that was written by him. Yeah, 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 yeah. I thought that's like a, I, quite like, I, mean, I quite like Star Trek, but then I'm on my own. No, no, I love it. Oh yeah, I, oh, yeah, I, I like it too. Fat yeah, Boy Run, good. which yeah. I'm probably quite a few people think right. is terrible, but I thought it was no, right. I like Fat Run, Fat Boy Run. Okay, yeah. there's a, a rom com he did about uh, meeting a girl in in the London train station. Mm. I can't remember what it's called or which train station, but that was quite good fun. Was he <laughs> How to Lose Friends and Alienate People as well? He yes, was, wasn't he? Was, he yeah. playing Toby... 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 Oh, yeah, I know you mean. I want to say Toby Jones, but it's Yeah, not. I know. I want to say Toby Jones as well. <laughs> yeah. It's not Toby yeah. Jones. Toby Jones. Jug. Hey! Oh, I think a round of applause for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but anyway. I, I, do you know what? If you want to watch something and go, oh, my God, have they really done that? Oh, blimey. And it, my wife turned around to me and said... This feels like a children's film, and it and it does. Did wow. you ever see um, after Gavin and Stacey? Um, Corden, vampire, vampire, lesbian killers, or lesbian vampire killers, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It was really bad. That's awful. <laughs> 
Gavin yeah. and Stacey was such a good series. Yeah. I think there's a reason why James Corden is now a chat show host rather than... Yeah, you're probably a right. film actor or... Yeah. You've got to ask, how does somebody who co-writes something that was as good as Gavin and Stacey... I mean, does everybody? did everybody here see Gavin and Stacey? Yeah. yeah. So you yeah. like it? Good, good yeah. It's yeah. okay. Yeah. It's not my sort of thing, but yeah. Go from that to lesbian vampire killers or whatever it is. Because that's just appalling. I guess you go for high concept and you miss... Yeah. <laughs> is it this word vehicle? Yeah. Where they get these actors together and it's a vehicle. Yes. For their yeah. personalities. And it could, it could be... I mean, if it's sort of high camp comedy... I mean, Shaun of the Dead were. It was going for Shaun of the Dead, but it... It missed and ended up as Cockney zombie killers or whatever that was. Yeah. The Danny Dyer. Yeah. It was dreadful. I've got some film reviews to do. Do them now or do them later? Later. Well, we'll let them do them later. Okay. I look forward to them. Oh, the film reviews. Interesting. The film reviews <laughs> this week are interesting. Can have a little snooze then? <laughs> before we get <laughs> on to the. Yeah. Before we get on to the main subject there, we've got emails. Oh, no, but before we get on to the emails, I wanted to bring up one more thing about last week because we talked about the 11th hour for ages and one thing I meant to bring up. Actually, two things. One thing we'll get into in The Beast Below because it's also relevant this week. But the other thing is. Okay, a question from Matt and Simon. And for you, Lee, as well, because you've seen it recently, but not as recently as us. The Village. I just, it, one thing about the way it was filmed, I never got a sense that it was a village. And I think that's also a problem with the script, because oh. there just seemed to be too many 20-somethings in that village. And the way it's shot, you never... When you had The Awakening and the demons and... Well, the, the Awakening and the demons... They had you can't do that anymore. The, the awakening and the awakening and the <laughs> demons. They had the advantage of of showing the church, and the church is always the centre of the village. Mm, and but... so and so you have, if you have a green with a church with the houses nestled around it, exactly. Then you get the sense of the village. You get the but sense that, of the geography. Fact, the church, if you've been to yeah. Oldbourne, it well, that yeah. is that is exactly Doctor what Who, it looks Doctor like. Who theme park. Yeah, London. but if you stuck a, yeah. if you stuck a camera in the middle of the green and swooped it round, all yeah. of those yeah. Yeah, everything's in it. Yeah, you know, you, you go yeah, to the yeah. pub, but the you actual, go to this. But the actual village is just outside of the, the green. So there's like housing estates, around the edges of the green and up the hill as well. Yeah, but that that green because it's got the church, it's got the pub, and yeah. that's what you need in the village. That's yeah, the, the all the places the they've gone to inside <laughs> in the actual story are yeah. on the green, and you yeah. can see them. But the, the point I'm making about the eleventh hour, you never get a shot which establishes any kind of geography. No. So you keep no, you having don't. them going from one place to another. There's a bit where they're walking up the road where she's having the conversation yeah. about a psychiatrist. Yeah. And that looks like a hill in a town somewhere. It's interesting, actually. And then when they get to the green, there's like a car park. Mm. How many villages have a car park and like you know that? What? We've been there. Yeah, I know they yeah, do. Yeah. But what but, I mean yeah. is, unless you're actually given the geography, it yeah. feels like it doesn't a look green like, in a town. It doesn't look like a television village. No, exactly. It needed to be established. So, oh, actually, interestingly, I think it's mirrored in Amy's choice because obviously sections of it are set there. Yeah, so yeah. you get this dreamlike quality. Yeah, and more well yeah, You're right. It is disjointed. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, and it's odd because that that uh, road that she walks up when she's talking about the psychiatrist and they go to the ice cream van leads straight into the pond area, which mm. is you know we've been to that place. Mm. Me and Simon have had a good look round, mm. and mo- everything that's filmed there is there. It's in that village, pretty much. The best thing about Oldbourne is 
if you go up a track, did you go up the track next to the church? No, if I you go up there. half a mile up that track, you get to the Long Barrows where they filmed the Barrow. So anyway, back to the eleventh hour. Yeah, but uh, but the other thing is, he's got twenty minutes to save the Earth, and then they drive into the nearest town and to the hospital. Now, we all drive, apart from Matt. You no, drive. drive. You I drive. drive. Yeah. We all drive. When was the last time you drove from a village to the nearest town and to the hospital and managed to do that in presumably less than half of 20 minutes? Because there's also a lot of other running around in that 20 minutes yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Well, well, well I, grew but, up, I grew up in a village. Yeah, same here. Which had a hospital on the outskirts because it was between yeah, but this, the town and the, the hospital is on the about. outskirts of the... What I mean is, again, it's a failure to establish yeah, the yeah, geography. Yeah, but this isn't yeah. a cottage hospital, is it? Because it's got a, a couple of floors. It's quite a big yeah, hospital. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like, like a... Well, yeah. this is, this is, is like and, yeah, Andover, Andover Hospital. Okay. I'll tell you one That's thing I didn't, I didn't mention is that the editing, the bit where the doctor gets hit in the face with a cricket bat and it cuts to an ambulance. So you immediately assume, oh, he's in the ambulance, he's gone to the hospital. Yeah. So mm. I think it's a bit of dodgy editing. Well, well, maybe it's is deliberate it, and it's a red this all because, of Is this all because last week we were under three hours? So we basically, <laughs> we basically got so we're aiming left to, over about last week. We're, we're just rolling over podcasts now. <laughs> just residual thought, yeah. isn't it? Um, okay, let's move on then. I had an email from Jeff Waddell who said, I had Lego as a kid in 1971-72, but never had the figures. They came later, mid-70s, yeah. I think. Did they borrow the clamps as hands from the Ice Warriors, or did the Ice Warriors borrow them from Lego? My mum says there were Lego people in the 60s, but I don't believe that. No, there weren't. Because uh, I'm fairly sure I had one of the first ones. Was what is, that, is that just about the Ice Warriors? Is that connecting to... I don't know. Where, does that, where did that come from? That's pretty random. <laughs> but Jeff's a pretty random person, okay. so... In fact, there were some Lego people just before the little minifigures, which were slightly bigger, and they had... These weird hands that had holes on the bottom, so you could attach them to. Well, bricks. I don't like that. It was a bit weird. What's the mini? Are the mini figures just normal Lego figures? Yeah. Oh, but I'm, I think just we... right mid mid seventies. Okay. Well, I ones. actually forwarded that to Stephen Shapansky, also known as Legopolis, on Twitter <laughs> of Radio Free Scaro, and he said yes. I think it was 1978. He said the Lego minifigures came out. And yes, he also talked about the earlier bigger ones with the different hands. Um, what a nerd. <laughs> oh, so about to talk about the beast below. <laughs> right, this one. Here's another email from John Hull, who's the guy who is, although he didn't um, do either of the arrangements himself, he's the guy who's responsible for our current theme and our next one because oh. they were friends of his who he put in touch with me. Very good, it is too. He says, hi, JR, just catching up on the podcast. I think the audio dramas I've heard knock spots off the unofficial videos you've talked about. I wanted to like the Air Zone solution, but found it a bit dull. But the performance has made it worth watching. <laughs> That's probably a fair point. Although I suppose when he says the audio dramas, does he mean Big Finish or does he mean the pre-Big Finish? Because there are a lot of pre-Big Finish. Have to be specific on this show. Well, no, because yeah. the pre-Big Finish ones are pretty... I mean, apart from the professionalism that they've now got and the fact that they've got the actors and lots of other professional actors in to do the parts, mm. the ones that were pre-Big Finish, the audio visuals, they were quite... Professionally done as well. I think By so. the time they got into the stride, that's why they got the big finish contract. I've never heard any, but I've read, read yeah, books yeah. about them. Yeah, the milk book on audio visuals. Yeah. 
plug. Um, anyway, John carries on and says, Random question to all. If there was a secret cinema thing for a screening of a Doctor Who story, <laughs> which one would you like to see in that made-up environment with people dressing up, interacting, etc., like the story presented? I'll get to the end of the email and then we'll find out. <laughs> He says, I've not been to a secret cinema night. They all seem to be in that London. Yep. Thanks for playing my friend's <laughs> themes. Good, aren't they? Yes, I think we can all agree with that. I do a couple of radio shows on Summer Valley FM too. Should have asked for a plug. Yeah. Oh. Well, because obviously I plugged his friend's radio show who did the what? theme that I used on the what radio, what radio station was that? Summer Valley FM, S-O-M-E-R Valley and FM. And who was writing the email? Well, basically, it sounds like Summer Valley FM basically just employ lots of nerds to okay, present their okay. radio. Including John Hull. Yeah, so oh, I reckon really everybody should just Google Summer Valley FM and tune in, because wow. <laughs> it's got to be worth a try. Mm. Mm. Okay. Right, on to the secret cinema thing. Does everybody here know what secret cinema is? Yes. yes. Are we talking about along the lines of Rocky Horror type? Thing? Well, it's a little bit more involved than they that. Did a, they did a Back to the Future recently. Okay. Where. The, yeah, let's they, explain they kind of first stage of all. It. For people who don't know, because I didn't know, I had to look it up. Okay. What happens with secret cinema is, you'll have to correct me on things here, people buy tickets to see the secret cinema film, but they don't find out where it is until the night no. in question. Yeah. And then everybody descends on this place. And it's not just the film, but it lasts basically all night or something. Yeah. Yeah. And you kind of go in and everybody, you kind of not exactly act out scenes from the film, but the entire thing is a whole evening it's almost like in. a convention it's almost like a yes. massive cosplay and the other bits are going on as well so they did the Back to the Future yeah, so, if so they, what if, was involved with that? Um, I don't know actually because I didn't go yeah. <laughs> but I can instance, tell you what was involved in the 28 Days Later one because I actually read well, that's on the most that. recent one isn't it? yeah because yeah. the Back to the Future one got cancelled yes uh, there were three Back to the Future nights and they cancelled the first two yes. which caused a lot of upset apparently the 28 Days Later one Everybody went in and were given surgical gowns and then had to lie on hospital beds and they had like all this stuff that they had to do and then eventually two hours later when they get to watch the film, they're in their surgical gowns lying on their hospital beds watching it on 12 screens that are attached to the ceiling that it's being projected on. Brilliant. So it's an immersive. I think Labyrinth would be a good one for secrets of cinema, I think. It could be a sort of masked ball... Yeah. Set up yeah, Mask good. of the Red Death. That would be good. Yeah. Yeah. But on the subject Sergei of Doctor Who, Sergei Eisenstein's <laughs> Ivan Terrible. Sergi, 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 <laughs> Damon's. <laughs> we should talk Sir about guy, that because I think that's quite interesting. Okay. Because you've said Damon's and we've all said demons, and so we yeah, look into. Mean, that's the whole thing. Off. Well, I know you are now. But no, but I think it's quite interesting what I looked up and found out yes. about the pronunciation yeah. and how it was supposed to be. But are we going to talk about it when we talk about the, the demons? No, let's do it now. Oh, okay. It's fresh I mean, in my I head, I, I forget. I say demons because I think... It annoys I think, everybody. I think John Pertwee called them demons from the planet Damos at some point in the story. But also because if you call them demon, demons, then it, it there's no point in the extra A in the title. It has to be something well, that they added it no, to make it look, look No, I'll tell you. Yeah. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. I think that's why the extra A is in there. 
in order not to change the pronunciation, but in order to suggest to the people seeing the title on the screen at the start that this is something ancient. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's literally just that. Yes. And that's a affectation of Barry Letts to put that there. Yeah. And as I told you just before we came here, I actually looked it up and Barry Letts pronounces it demons. So obviously that was his intention. Yes. But the interesting thing was we got into the subject of... Did you want to put it in, Simon? No, 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 it's fine. I'll, okay. I can wait. We got into the subject of... The A and the E, of yeah. where it comes from and Ash. how it's supposed to be pronounced. Yeah, and you, uh, when it's separated and when it's together, yeah. it's be- essentially the same because the separated version has happened because, not because it's a different thing, but because mm. it's the same thing that people have just yeah. written yeah. differently. So they're, they're essentially the I'm, same thing. I'm desperately trying to remember because it's about 20 years since I was taught Anglo-Saxon. Which well, <laughs> it comes from Latin. And in Latin, it should be pronounced I. Right. As in Caecilius. Yeah. But when it transferred into Anglo-Saxon English, the pronunciation was a flat A, like mm. in the northern version of grass. So, and the only, I th- the only one I can think of that still survives into the modern day where they use that pronunciation is in anaesthetic. Yeah. But all the other pronunciations we have in modern English now seem to be the E pronunciation, as in the demons, mm. where you have, well, I don't know, for example, and this is not a great example, but Aesop is, yeah. we pronounce Aesop, Aesop in English, and that's the A-E thing. And of course, also, when you've got O before E, as in Oedipus, that seems to have mm. the E sound rather mm. than the O sound mm-hmm. as well. But then... You've got the A sound that you were saying from the Damons that obviously John Pertwee did, yeah. which must have been his own personal mistake. Yeah, yeah, probably. But I also discovered that there are a couple of other... There are about... I, when I looked it up online, I found about five different pronunciations mm. of it. And essentially, it seems to be that because it came from one language and transferred into another incorrectly... Yes. That there's, all bets are off about how it's supposed to be correctly there's also, pronounced. There's also a slight complication because there was something called the Great Vowel Shift mm. of the, the 17th or 16th century where all the vowels changed their, changed their pronunciation. So actually, what we might be talking about when we're talking about anaesthetic is how it's been said since the 16th century. So for the, the demons, which I will call it the demons from now on, that it could be even older than that. It's going yeah, for a yeah, sort of yeah. archaic look. So you and of course, probably never quite grasped. And, and, even and actually, when you say anaesthetist, it yeah. changes pronunciation and actually, anyway. Actually, mm. the fact that the fact that you can't quite grasp the pronunciation actually adds to the story because the whole idea is it's about slippery concepts that you quite can't quite grasp. Well, it's that's about, about something. Yeah, it? the original word medieval has got an A in it as well, so it's medieval. Yes. It's yeah. like medieval. But it's not even medieval. Yes. It's medieval, medieval, isn't it? Yeah. About the mm. I. Yeah. Yeah. So medieval. Yeah. Mm. So you. Yeah. So that makes sense. What you say. Well, that's obviously what. Yeah, right. Lie. In fact, (laughs) medieval (laughs) is probably the word above all others that Barry Letts was thinking when he put that change in the spelling. And also, it might might also be similar to having a a cavern rather than a crypt. They needed to sort of distance it from the Dennis Wheatley kind of occult. Well, they they needed to find. Yeah, but they also needed to try and distance it from like 
religion as well. Yeah, yeah. In a well, way, so yeah, they were trying so to find a middle ground somewhere in between yeah. that was safe for kids to watch mm-hmm. and safe for Mary White. I think blow, to watch. blowing up the church distanced it from religion quite effectively. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and we, also from Mary White. Should, should, should we nominate our secret? Yeah, yeah I was going to say we better get to that. All I was going to say is well, you. This I think I've worked out what you're going to say. I'm going to say the demons. Well, what a shock! Secret cinema because Oldbourne. Fans descend on old ball. Oh, yeah. A big screen. They walk around Dressed locations. In they go into the pub. And they stuff. go into the pub, and the the scenes in the pub are shown in the pub. We don't the, the need the secret cinema to do that. We can do that. <laughs> and then you yeah. watch it on a big screen. How amazing would that green. be? And you go from location Dressed to location. Morris, that's a good idea. And just screen watch the green. You go into the church and watch the scenes in the crypt. Deem on the there green. There is no crypt, but anyway. <laughs> cavern there's no crypt in that church no, no. There isn't. Oh, is it not no oh, just yeah. very briefly jumping back yeah. to the pronunciation a couple of recent yeah, oh, oh, uh, references uh, obviously his dark materials how do they pronounce demons in that they call them demons oh yeah yeah. Yes, they call them demons. And also the Bartimaeus. But they spell it with an A in there. Yeah. I think they do, oh, okay. yeah. yeah. And the Bartimaeus trilogy as well in which there is a passage about the pronunciation I think in that they pronounce it demons. Ooh, Ooh, that's interesting. I'll double check it. Probably because the author's a John yeah. Pertwee fan. But I, I really like the fact that there's no real definite pronunciation. It's like it, it works with Azal. You can't quite tell what Azal is. He's not the devil. He's he's part the alien, part. I the thought devil, you were going to say scientist, him, part Dave Lee Travis, magician, <laughs> part Dave Lee Travis. <laughs> Typical, typical of I thought you were going to say it works. hairy 1970s men. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say. I can't believe you didn't just need some prison. girls around him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, Joe, Stanley, Dad, Joe. <laughs> I thought, and a, and a day glow. I thought you were going to yeah. say it works with Azal as well. You can't quite tell what he is, Azal or Azal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's all they're out. Azul tells some of the top shelf. Top shelf demon magazine. Yeah. Azul! <laughs> 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 Lovely horns. Sure, you knew where I was going with that. Oh, God. Uh, Arazel. Oh, the, the only rest one. of us have got to know yeah, yeah. Secret Cinema. What's that in? Was that Johnny Briggs? Arazel. Arazel in Johnny Briggs. I didn't see Johnny Briggs too young too old yeah Um, nominate a secret cinema Doctor Who story Deadly Assassin Tiny Little Train there's one in Paul Park (laughs) (laughs) Terror of the Autons we all do it in an enormous great sandwich box (laughs) I've got a good Castro Valva everyone dresses in beige some people are strapped to the ceiling, some to the yeah, walls. Yeah. Well, you could do Six. it. I, I quite like to do it. You yeah. could do it in like a three-dimensional maze. Yeah, exactly. That would exactly. be really interesting. <gasps> and then Matthew Waterhouse strapped Celestial up in the corner. Celestial Toymaker. Everybody has to solve the Trilogic game before they can go <laughs> through to the screening. Edge, of, edge of Destruction, you build a replica inside TARDIS and you just wander through these TARDIS corridors watching Edge of there Destruction. There are no corridors in Edge of Destruction. I know, but you could just put them Legopolis, in. That's what I was going to say. Legopolis, lots of yeah. different colours. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah ah, I've got a good one. Flatline. 
Because only one ticket sold, and you're the only one who walks in. Everyone else is two-dimensional. We're made of paper. Wow. <laughs> Delta and the Bannermen, you could go to a really rubbish... Holiday camp. <laughs> yeah, holiday camp. Have <laughs> a miserable time. Yeah. Isn't that all tomorrow's parties or something yeah. like that? Somebody's playing 1960 music on a DX7. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. something. But then going back I to know, Mask I of the Red that. Death, Mask Delta of Mandragora would be a great one for the dressing yeah. up. Yeah. 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 Port Merion. The Mask mm. The Mask of Mandragora. You could have it in Port Merion. Mm-hmm. It's the sort of thing you could pay Port Merion to do. I'm sure most of the people in Port Merion who live there have it in Port Merion. But let's move on. Mm. Uh, oh that sounds like a great plan. You're really off form tonight, JR. I don't know what it I'm is. I'm always off form. It's just that you're you normally got, on the other end of the microphone. JR, sounds got, much better. JR got quite cross about something before we started recording, and I think it's bled into the podcast. Could be that. The mind robber <laughs> would be brilliant. Oh, that oh would be yeah. Good. Yes. Land of fiction. Mm, wow. Do it all in the library. <laughs> dear blue boxers i have been listening to your latest podcast it was quite good oh there, okay. <laughs> I need to know? there was a letter from a man who had also listened and he couldn't tell lee simon and mark apart he said he could pick out jr as he talked 99 percent of the time but i think jr talks more than that baba <laughs> that's me <laughs> thought that this was very funny but I can't tell which one is him and which one is Mr Barleywater when they are on the same podcast except when he argues with JR which is a lot in <laughs> in this podcast you were reviewing internet videos I have seen quite a lot of these but you didn't cover any of the ones I usually watch when my <laughs> hand has recovered enough the ones you looked at had more talking in them and were more Doctor Who related you compared one of them to the Igor Sanctuary, which was a <laughs> flim about where evil henchmen go when their bosses get mad at them, and it started Clunk Eastwood and his friend Barry McGuigan and also George Galloway. You said it had a lot of columns in it, so I didn't think I would bother watching it, but then you said it had lots of girls running around with their bats out, so I am now going to see it, and I think my hand get tired. <laughs> I think I call them fun bags, humiliatingly. <laughs> I don't really get them out. There's no nudity in the Iger sanction. Oh yeah, she does. That's the whole point. To encourage him to run up the... the, the oh, hill. of course, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, but... I mean, yeah. 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 But earlier on, it's all very um, tastefully done. <laughs> it's not tasteful. <laughs> but, but it's clothed. Yeah. <laughs> the videos you looked at were Death Comes to Tim which was when the Doctor had to help Tim Henman as he stopped being able to hear when the ball was coming at him. Then Reel's time, where the Doctor went fishing a lot and maybe caught crabs. The next one was called Shadder, which was all about when the Doctor went on Start Wreck and met a man with a furry animal on his head, which went rabid and ate all the healthy food, so he got very fat. Finally... You talked about Ice Cream of the Stalker, which was about when the Doctor was hunting a man who kept following Perry, but he caught him when he stopped for a 69 with a flake in it, and my hand got tired because I was watching Planet of Fire, your friend, Sharak Jizz. Hey. Dear Blue Boxers, I've listened to your latest episode, and why, oh why, oh why, oh why are you still giving a platform to character comedian Sharak Jizz? I download your podcast every week to enjoy new content, and yet you persist in recounting these gags that are the same every single time, 
with the occasional concession of changing the name of the woman being objectified. Mm. I am not so naive to think that this dead donkey of a joke is being flogged at the expense of women, and I am certainly not accusing Mr. Jizz of being a misogynist. But I don't think he realises that the last decent carry-on film was released in 1974 and the figure of the laughable but pitiful pervert hasn't been a viable stock character in comedy since. So unless, so unless he has a TARDIS, he should probably call it a day. And that's from Anna Ney Moss. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Anna. It's a reason. It's... A, it's, a, it's a, Slightly ruined by the fact she called him Mr. Jizz in the middle, in the middle of her email. Which, <laughs> I've got to say, though, his name, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, as much as we like it when people send us emails, we like it when people send us emails that we can engage with. And let's be honest, the Sharak Jizz joke has worn a little bit thin. Why don't you set Sharak Jizz a challenge of writing one more final email? <clears throat> Well, and that we can applaud, and then, <laughs> and then, and then he can sort of, bow out gracefully. Yeah. Or alternately, get another line of humour. Mm. It doesn't always have to be the hand got tired joke. Do you know what the thing I find the funniest? The funniest thing I find in them is is the names. Yeah, when he gets the names mixed yeah. up. And it, if he could do that without going on, because let's be honest, we've been reading them out for got a year now and it is always the objectification of women mm. and that's you know in spite of what Anna says that is part of what his emails are about mm. Mm. that that is a bit off in this day and age so <clears throat> if he can do it without that then we carry on but mm. to be honest this, is, prefer... a this is a character mind it about is a character yeah, yeah, person yeah. Yes. So well, that's, yeah, that's but kind of the point of the joke. Well, the maybe irony, irony, maybe. Well, <laughs> instead of doing the masked underworld-dwelling character from uh, Caves of Androzani, maybe he could perhaps go back to Robert Holmes' previous masked underworld-dwelling character and call himself Wang Chung and come up with a new character who manages to do it without all the sexism. Oh, well, oh, so we consult the rest of the world instead, <laughs> <Yeah>. then. <laughs> God. The emails of Wang Chung. <laughs> there you go. There's a challenge for you, Sharak. Yeah, the, the tellings. The tellings of Wang Chung. <laughs> yes. Very good. Like it. So there's a challenge for Sharak Jizz. Well, there's mm. a whole a whole new minefield you've just opened up. <laughs> reposition yourself well and reposition your hand and we'll carry on. Otherwise, I think it's time to uh, knock it on the head. Um, okay, three re film reviews, but we'll do those after we've talked about The Beast Below. But I just, there is one more thing I wanted to get into, just wanted to bring up briefly before. Um, and I didn't make a copy of this because he didn't send it in to be read out, but Ian Key mm -hmm. got in touch on Twitter and essentially he said, although. The um, sort of gist of what he was saying was that I don't think he'd enjoyed the Stephen Moffat stories, the Peter Capaldi stories rather, first time around. But he had been listening to our podcast and had gone back and revisited them and found he enjoyed them a lot more. Ah. And so the sense I got of that was, well, I just, I 
posted this on Facebook for all the people who've seen it. Sense of pride, I'd imagine. No, not a sense of pride, but just... No, not pride. The opposite of pride. How humbling it is when somebody writes in and say that even in whatever kind of a small way, you've been in some way responsible for... But, I mean, in a really, really small yeah. way for making this world a brighter place. Because if he's enjoying something now that he wasn't before, mm. I should think that in, you know, to whatever tiny degree, he's a slightly happier yeah, person because Because it'd of be it. easier so to make, make the point that... It's... That sounds a bit patronising, which isn't how it was meant, no, but no, you know no. what I mean. It'd be yeah. easier to make the point that that you're saying you're pleased you've managed to change someone's mind, and that's not the point. No, no, no. no. It's not about changing no. somebody's mind. It's about because... No, it's not about what I've done. Mm. It's about what's happened with them. Yeah, if he's if he is enjoying something more now mm. than he was before because of something that we've done, mm. then it's not then it's not the important thing is not what we've done, no. but the important thing is that he is getting more enjoyment out of something, uh, yes. and it's nice to have been a tiny tiny part of that being able to happen. Experience. And also, it's not necessarily that we've convinced him of anything; we've just encouraged him to go back. And, and Stephen Moffat stories see... get better the more you watch them because they're, I know, they're yeah. rich. And so, just yeah. further to that is you go back and it's not that we've said this is what you should no. see, yeah. but if we've said this is what we've seen, yeah. then he goes back and he might not see what we've seen, yeah. but again, he might not see what he originally saw. He might see something else entirely. But if he's not seen the same thing he saw in the first place then it's not that you've changed his mind, it's that you've opened it to... Because that, that in essence, is quite a... It's insulting. It's like when we get people sort of say that, oh, JR's always changing their minds or something like that. Every now and again, I think me and Lee, possibly, somebody says... Mostly Lee. Yeah. Oh, oh JR's got, got them wrapped around his little finger and all this sort of thing. Well, that's... That's yeah, why it's not really giving us the respect. That's why Matt's here now, because he argues with everything I say, regardless. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't. That's not true. <laughs> oh come on! But, but, but it's the same thing. It's not you know if, if you're gonna if you're yeah. gonna say that somebody's had their mind changed by a podcast, mm. then that's a little but, bit. But also changing changing your mind is a sign of intelligence. Yeah, it's, it's unintel- unintelligent to be intransigent and to have a fixed view on something. But you you're change your always own mind. changing your mind. Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. You take mind. You, you take in the information. Yourself. Oh, really? Exactly. That's good. Then I can never make my mind up, so I must be like a bloody genius. <laughs> well, we're excluding you from this conversation because <laughs> <laughs> this is you, are, speaking, you are by like way. you are like a sheep. Hang on, basically. <laughs> but the thing is, as well, in order that's to be able to change your mind, you must be in possession of one, Lee. Yeah, get back to your script, Lee. <laughs> okay, um, so this, the actually, this this connects it. So we've just rewatched the Beast Below, and that's made me change my mind. Well, because, we'll get into again, that. it's a Stephen Moffat thing. The more you watch it, the, the more, more you sense see it. Makes. Yeah, and, and I'm, you know, I'm but we'll get into that in a second. Quiet. Let us mm. read the messages that oh, okay. people posted about the Beast Below and our Series Five voting. And if anybody wants to get involved in the Series Five voting, find Blue Box Podcast on Facebook. And on one of the threads there, we have a Series 5 vote going on, and you can vote for it, and we're going to do the results when we get to the end of this series of reviews. Steve Herr said, Finally, the space whale sees our screens and loved the Star Wars screen wipes. (laughs) Rob Irwin says, I was downcast when this went out. After such a great opener, this episode felt like a bit of a mess. Still liked Smith, though. Kieran Hyman says, What in hell's bells is it about those smiling chaps that make them so decidedly menacing? (laughs) 
Uh, David Kitchen says a lot of silly ideas that don't really fit and require way too much suspension of disbelief. Mm. And Dil- no, I don't know. You're shaking your head, no, Simon. I, 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 some I, of that. I do agree with some of that. No, I think David Kitchen's missed the point, but I think the well, we'll get into well, the, this. The whole, this whole, I think the this, point was easy to miss. This yes. whole podcast is no, going to be about something that. Else. Yeah, it is yeah. really how it connects together. Yeah. Dylan Reese says, who would have thought Moffat could be so mediocre? Lots of nice ideas, but it feels a few drafts away from being finished. And what do the Smilers actually do? And that's the uh, comments. Okay, before we get into it any further, I'll bring up the other thing from last week that I didn't get to that's relevant also to this week's. And it's one of those chicken and egg things. Mm. Sort of. Last week, for the benefit of Lee and for anybody listening who doesn't remember or didn't hear it um we talked about the fact that olivia coleman was in it and had a small part and we said there are two reasons and then we said well one of the reasons was and then we never got to the other reason but it's equally true of terence hardiman this week Mm. so it's still relevant to bring it up now so the first reason we gave was you know this was earlier in her career before she was anything like as famous as she is now so why wouldn't she have taken a small part and she was so good in it that undoubtedly the playing that small part was part of what led it to the bigger parts that have made it so famous Hmm. and the other thing is the chicken and egg thing and it's not really chicken and egg but that's the best sort of name to give it to describe what the situation is and i see this an awful lot and i was listening to a podcast this morning that talked about um series eight and they said you've brought in um, oh, who plays Missy? Oh, Michelle Gomez. Hey. Michelle Gomez. You've brought in Michelle Gomez as this woman villain, and then you make her the master. That's not how it works. You bring in Michelle Gomez as the master, and you tease it with her earlier in the series, and don't tell people that's who it is. Hmm. And I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of watching something on your screens and assuming that the way you're seeing it is the way it happened. Chronologically, I mean. Mm. And with casting, it's the same thing. People see an actor they know in a television programme, and they think, oh, they've got that actor in to play a part, and then that they've only given that part three lines. No. What happens is, they've written a script, and in that script, there is a part which only has three lines, and then, later on down the line that actor has agreed to come in and be the person who does those three lines. So it's not like they got Terence Hardiman in and gave him a part that was only in three scenes and had six lines. They had a part that was in three scenes and had six lines and Terence Hardiman is the guy who came in to do it, just as last week Olivia Coleman was the woman who came in to do that part. So I think it's quite important when you're judging what actors are doing in Doctor Who to remember that the script was written before the actor was cast 99% of the time Mm. and not the other way around. I mean, unless anybody's got anything to add on that, we could probably move on. Unless something specific like The Lodger or something like that. Yeah, Yeah, which is... And Kylie in Voyage of the Damned. These are occasions when parts are written for people, but that happens so rarely, and it's certainly not the case with things like Olivia Colman and Terence Hardiman. Mm -hmm. My uh, late father-in-law went to school with Terence Hardiman. Really? Wow. 
what was he like? Very quiet, very pleasant. A bit like he is on screen then, really. Yeah. Apart from the demon headmaster. Which obviously I've never seen being the wrong age. Oh, that's good. Beast Below. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to throw something out there and then we'll use that as a starting point. And it is that. And this seems to have been forgotten. But The Beast Below was broadcast during the general election of 2010. Now, when we sat down to watch this, apart from Simon who watched it a couple of hours before the rest of us... Mm. When we sat down to watch this, I said, bear that in mind and see if we can work out, A, what Stephen Moffat's politics are, and B, what he was trying to say. Because you don't broadcast an episode about an election in the middle of a general election campaign unless you've got something to say. Mm. And let's face it, there was a line halfway through when somebody says, and you do this vote every five years. Yeah. And we all looked at each other and said, yeah, there's no doubt whatsoever that Moffat knew this was going out in the middle of an election. Where are the Scottish? They yes. always wanted their own ship. Good for them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. which was all about the... Uh, yeah. But it didn't actually happen that way, did it? Yeah. Um, did we... Managed to work out a what Moffat's politics are and b what he's trying to say. I'm 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 skeptical whether there's a, that that precise a kind of political allegory on it. But if you want to see it, then there is one there, which is the sp- the space whale. So it is a socialist allegory potentially. So oh, go on. The, the whole country. So effectively, you've got a country riding on the back of a, a space whale. So if the space whale becomes if you're thinking in class terms, the space world becomes the working class being oppressed from above, being pain inflicted okay. on them. And the solution isn't pain, it's just stopping the pain. And which treating would be them nicely. Social security. And letting them get on with their charity, jobs. Letting them get on with their jobs. And they'll go faster as a result. Mm, so Interesting. So that, I'm, I'm not sure whether, whether that would be that. absolutely explicit. I think it's a broader... Mm. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much here. I mean, there's so much... Further than that, though, and specific yeah. to the Labour Party, mm. I guess in terms of the actual election that was going on, to use that same analogy, mm. at the time, the Labour Party were coming under all kinds of criticism from the outside about certain things, some of which were beyond their control. Mm. And I think even things that they... We won't go too far down this road, but I think even certain things that looked like they were within Labour's control that they were being criticised for actually weren't, and it was a matter of perception. Mm. But we won't get into that because that's a conversation that's way too deep for the Blue Box podcast. Mm. But because the Labour Party are being criticised for all these things, maybe that's where the forget-don't-forget comes in. And possibly what you're saying is, Forget the things that the Labour Party are being criticised for and keep them there because they're the right people for the country. These two things you've just mentioned, the space well and the forget, don't forget, these are within the script. Yeah. In the script. Mm. The whole thing you yeah. can see in the script. We're talking about the production. I was going to say, on the surface, there are other things, but mm. I'm not sure that if they're not in the script that it should really count, but maybe it, it's something that may have been verbal coming from... Oh, you're talking about the red and blue. I'm talking start. there's a lot of red and blue in there. Yeah, and I th- I'm... Yeah. I think that's just a coincidence. Are you I sure? So, yeah. yeah. No, I'm not what, entirely you sure. Because so if you've ever read any of Moffat's scripts, he's very descriptive, and he will put things like that in. So it's yeah. possible it was there. I mean, the way I the way I saw it, I I saw it as a more general: you should vote, and you should be active in your voting. So it's important not to forget about what you've done before. You shouldn't yeah. vote for somebody just because you always 
do that. Mm -hmm. You should think about the last five years and the last 10 years and 20 years, and you should make your mind up based on on what you remember, not what you forget. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the broader. Mm -hmm. So the red and the blue, <clears throat> you kind of have an innocent girl dressed in blue and an innocent boy dressed in blue. blue. They're, both, in, the they're both innocent. <laughs> so there's not really a sort of a weighty political kind of message behind it except maybe the only thing is the girl in red survives and the guy in blue goes down and survives and of course well he does in the end yes yeah, yeah. but he doesn't appear to in that scene i mean the, and in the context of that scene yeah, yeah the dynamic is that she goes up and he goes down yeah yeah the the hierarchy does it's a good job sharik jizz isn't writing in next week <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the hierarchy doesn't seem to be particularly representative of our political system as it is. No, but this I think is, we've established that Stephen Moffat's a socialist and that's what he was doing. Yeah, so we yeah. could probably move on now anyway. But it was a dystopia as well. So it's, mm. it's mm. stretching it into a sort of post-apocalyptic future. Mm. If if we don't start thinking about who we vote for and if we, if we stop voting, because effectively what they're doing is that we've got a population that doesn't vote anymore. Mm. It just presses the abstain button, which is what forget is. Yeah. And that's what's causing the problem. That's what's causing the continuation of the of the torture mm. is by not voting. So I think all I think its main message is whoever you vote for, just vote. And I think that's you know, that's probably the message for the next election as well, mm. because mm. that's that's how the Conservatives got in. Because people didn't vote, not because well, Oh, well I think we should vote now. Ten out of ten. I'm just kidding. We'll get to it at the end. <laughs> I think there's way more to it than that, oh, which yeah, we'll yeah, get yeah. into. Yeah. <clears throat> Did you notice, little? I don't know if there's continuity error or what, but when you first see the city, one of the R's in Surrey isn't working. Then when there's a close-up, <laughs> it's working again. No, 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 no. When you first see the city, it's blinking and it comes on. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's out at the start of the shot and yep. it's on by the end of the shot. Oh, you I must like have looked elsewhere. Go on, give me more reasons to like it. Um... Did, I know. did you like this one? I do like it. What did you like about it, Sonny? I All these silly ideas, mm. I think a lot of them are really great ideas, but the glue in between is the bit that's yeah. kind of all elastic and isn't quite working. Right. And that's you're, how a, I feel. you're a comics, yes, comics fan. Exactly so 2000, 2000 AD, Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman. Mm. This, is where, this is where... It's actually reminding me, big style, of Mortal Engines, which I'm currently in the middle of reading. Yes, right. Reeves, which is a very Mortal similar Engines. idea, apart from it's in space, this speaks below. Do you know what? It reminded me of V for Vendetta. Okay. I think. And I think, I think it was deliberate. I think it's that queen, yeah. the queen thing and mm. the dystopia and and the, the, the sort of the slightly fascist state. But this is a fascist state that doesn't realise it's a fascist state mm. because people have forgotten. So it's this weird, mm. it's this weird fascist state run by people who are fascists, but they're unaware of being fascists. Yeah, Let's get bizarre. into... Let's get yeah. into the glue and the production yeah. stuff in a minute. Uh, let's, uh, because I think this will take this will be brief. But I was pleasantly surprised by Karen Gillan this week. Mm. I seem to remember from when I first watched this that I thought she wasn't very good in this, but actually she was very very good in this. I think mm. what I had the pro the problem I had with her character, not necessarily her, is that it, she was too advanced and too chummy with the Doctor too quickly in Eleventh Hour. Mm. It just felt like oh you know she's known him forever, but she hasn't. She hasn't. Yeah. She had a little stick figure of him. So it was it was too quick. Yeah. And then this second episode, for me, should have been, you know, the, the build-up of their relationship. But in fact, again, it was straight into it. But okay, they probably have some time together now. Yeah. But um, yeah. no, I thought I... she did rather well this time, actually. After, you know, years and years of not particularly liking the character, 
I really enjoyed what she did, and it was a good. I think there are a few good companions. Good companion story. I think there are a few problems story-wise, both with her and with the story at the very end of it. But I think we'll come to that later. I think I unless you want to come to it. I didn't. I didn't like. I didn't immediately like Karen Gillan when I first saw her. So in the Eleventh Hour and the Beast Below, I think why I like her now is because there's the future weight of all her all of her other stories. So I've mm. seen all of Karen yeah. Gillan's stories. I've got used to her. Mm. I know what the relationship is with the Doctor and I also know yeah. what the off-screen relationship is. Yeah, with, and that background and substantiates how she behaves yeah. in that episode. Yeah, yeah. So, so actually, mm. watching this now after seeing the rest of them, mm. it's much more natural and I can see that, that relationship. What's and interesting. And it works. I mean, it's not the right way to watch it because you're sort of going back in time and re-watching. But, but what's interesting works. about the relationship that we'll probably find as we carry on and watch the rest of this series and possibly also the next one is that after the first five episodes of this, it's not about her and the Doctor anymore. It's about her and Rory and the Doctor's perspective on it is filtered through the pair of them rather than just the one of them. Mm. And even when Rory gets killed and disappears... He gets killed? There you go. Vincent and the Doctor. <laughs> Vincent the Doctor isn't about Amy and the Doctor. It's about the Doctor's perspective on Amy missing Rory. Mm-hmm. So again, it's still about Amy and Rory and the Doctor being the separate thing that looks in on them. Yeah. So there's an. So we only have this dynam- dynamic of Amy and the Doctor for five episodes for these first yeah. four stories before it changes and becomes something else. And I think that's a really clever thing that Stephen Moffat does. But I wonder if that wrong foots people. I, well, I think it's a. I think it's clever because it's a transition between the RTD model of uh, quite a simple model of companion doctor, but taking and them then all gradu- back to the gradually series. they're sort of mm. they're kind of developing that, and then Moffat changes it by yeah, introducing yeah, yeah. Rory. So but I, I think the way he changes it changes it back to a dynamic that's slightly more like the classic series in yeah. that Ross T Davis had written, even with Donna, even though everybody says oh, we're not mating and all this kind of stuff. It's always in the background of Do- Donna's characterisation that the Tenth Doctor is this romantic hero. Mm. And I think Stephen Moffat's stepping back from that, but not stepping away from it entirely, because by giving Amy Rory, he enables that story to continue, but with somebody other than the Doctor. Yeah, And then we get the Doctor's perspective on it as an alien, mm which takes us back to what the Doctor's perspective was in the classic series. Mm. But I think when I said it wrong first, and why I've brought it up now is, I think that's possibly what wrong foots is about Amy when we first watched this, is that we didn't know at the time that that's where it was going and that's what was happening. So Amy becomes this character through that first series who always seems at odds with the programme because she's meant to be at odds with the Doctor and sort of not at odds with Rory. Yeah, and there's also a tension because with any tension, new, that's all with any new companion now, you're you're unconsciously thinking, well, which of these past companions is this companion going to be? So mm. you see Amy at the beginning. Mm. Is this going to be a Rose or maybe a Martha or is it just going to be a Donna? And that's the wrong way of of looking at it because they're trying to do something different each time. And they've run out of human relationships after Donna. I mean, that's and you've, every... had, you've had love, you've had unrequited love, you've had mates. And where do you go next? Well, in every series under Steve, under Stephen Moffat, under Russell T. Davis, every one of those four series, the tension for the audience was, 
will they get together at the end? Mm. And it's, will Eccleston and Rose get together? And then it was, will Tennant and Rose get together? And then, even though it was an unrequired love, you're still asking the question, will she get a man with Martha and Tennant in the third series? And then in the fourth series, you've got Rose in the very first episode. So it's not, will he get together with Donna? It's, will Rose be able to get back into our universe to get together with him? So the tension was always that. And in this, the tension suddenly becomes... And again, we're doing it again, talking about the whole of Series 5, but who cares? So in Series 5, the tension is not, will Amy get with the Doctor? Because I think Episode 5 is supposed to put a full stop on that, Mm. where they have the snog scene and he says, Mm. what the hell are you doing? Mm. But it's whether somehow Rory can be rescued so that Amy can have a happy ending and a wedding. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all know where it goes. But while that's actually happening, like I said... The ten, because you don't know where it's going, you can't actually put a pin in where your tension's supposed to be. Mm. So you're not. So that's slightly unsettling. Well, the intention is that for Amy to get a, get a, a shot of reality and work out what's best for her. That, well, that's what I mean. I think it's uh, it's probably this is probably a podcast and the, in itself, isn't it? Amy and Rory, the Amy and well, Rory story. But the, the nearest yeah, yeah. thing we have to a real relationship in Doctor Who, nothing else comes close. Well. Apart oh, from Clara and Danny, but and there's this, a thing about yeah. that as well. And these yeah. first five episodes are basically Amy's extended Hindu. Yeah, it's Amy's chance to kind of like let go, her go to Las Vegas, last mm, let yeah. her hair down before she gets married to mm-hmm. to Mister Safe. But I don't if you remember there was a seesaw situation between Amy and Rory mm. throughout the series, and it was teetering, and there was Team Amy and Team Rory. Mm. You know where people were. Literally saying, "What the hell is she doing? She's got herself a good bloke. Why isn't she with him?" And and Rory, you know, Rory was kind of the disenfranchised, you know, boyfriend. And and I think what happens is people read the Matt Smith Doctor through the sort of prism of what the Tenant Doctor was like. Mm. So even after Rory comes in in Vampires of Venice and like I say, I think that's Stephen Moffat putting a full stop on the possibility of there ever being romance between Amy and the Doctor. Mm. But because people are used to the Tenant Doctor being the romantic Doctor, people watching at home are still watching it, waiting for Amy to get together with the Doctor. Mm. And so Rory feels like a cuckold, even though Stephen Moffat's trying to tell a story mm. about how close Amy and Rory are and how the Doctor's actually not the cuckold, but in the cuckold position if that was a triangle. Mm. So there's this... And until you know how the story resolves, you can't fully appreciate the story that's being told. Because mm. it's not... Because it's Doctor I Who. It's not a romantic right. comedy. So you, in a romantic mm. comedy, you know which couple are supposed to get together at the end and the tension's about whether they do. But because this is Doctor Who, even though Stephen Moffat might be throwing in as many clues as possible that it's Amy and Rory, you're watching it, you're still not sure. At what point does Amy make a play for the Doctor? Is End that, of episode yeah, five. Episode five. End of the Angel story. I'm trying to think to what extent we've learnt, we've got to know Rory at that stage. Because if we've got to know we him don't, enough, we don't. We see him in the we 11th don't. hour and we don't see him again. And that's possibly the... part of the problem as well. Because I think if we'd seen Rory and we knew that there was kind of this tug of war, because how many times have we, have we known, how many times have you heard a girl say, I always go for the bad boy? Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. They're always nice guys, but they're not. I'm not interested in them because they're nice guys. They're too... 
reliable and they're too safe. <laughs> yeah, and that's, and how yeah, how many true. times have you heard it? That's what? experience, right? <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> it is, it's, just that, it's, it's, I don't know. I, I don't know the it's psychology. Logo, isn't it? It's, it's, it is. It's not you, it's me. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's a, it's a standard thing. Yeah, and and yeah, yeah. she, and then also you've got all this, the fact that she's, there's this hero worship that's built up across the years. Yeah. And that's going to be confusing to her as well. Mm. When she's th- trying to figure out to herself, do I settle down with the nice guy, the guy who's reliable, the guy I know loves me, mm. th- that doesn't necessarily throw up that is that the right person for me. Mm. So, And then the doctor comes along. He's this this massive uh, character who's influence been as well. influenced. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how does she correlate that information <laughs> of this person? There's also so a, a slightly creepy kind of dynamic in the two relationships so Amy is the dominant in the, the Amy Rory yeah. Rory is like the submissive yeah in the the trio mm. and the doctor's the only one who is even able to dominate Amy so mm. so, yeah. so he's the only one that Amy's able to feel sort of submissive towards absolutely and then, Not then there's that point is... 50 shades of grey about it but <laughs> but there is this kind of this but, kind but there of is a point where Rory turns around and says do you know what I've had enough of this I'm yeah, going to start yeah. calling the shots yeah. all of a sudden she goes is prick up and she goes yeah. oh actually yeah well, so it's after he spends thousands of years as an auton and yeah. becomes more doctor like as such mm-hmm. for about an episode yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it's... fair but in series well St- Stephen Moffat tends to compartmentalise doesn't he so in series 6 which is where you would have the story of how Rory becomes more dominant. Instead, he's telling the story of their child. Mm. So, you know, Rory's not pushed to the background, but Rory's not the emphasis of the story. So the sort of Rory and Amy story stops at the wedding. And then a new story starts with Rory and Amy in it Mm. from the next year. It's It's quite a traditional approach that's... The, the wedding is the climax to one thing, and then the child is the climax to the next thing. And this is... Okay, going back to The Beast Below, there's something... And going back to what um, David Kitchen said, and uh, where did I put the notes? Because I'll read it again. There they are. Because I think this is vital. And I think this is also vital to understanding Amy and Rory. He says, A lot of silly ideas that don't really fit and require way too much suspension of disbelief. And he's probably talking about things like the whale. How does it breathe? How did it, more importantly, how did it know about the children on Earth? Is it like watching from space? And how does it see through our atmosphere? And how does it hear what the children are talking about? It's an allegory. And allegories don't need to breathe. Exactly. That's that's the bottom line. It's not a lot of silly ideas that don't really fit together. It's a lot of really, really deep and clever ideas that don't necessarily fit together very well. All don't come across. I was going to say, if there's there's one thing within the within the episode that I don't, I I find is a little bit cosmetic, is the smilers. I I see those being a bit like the politicians. Mm -hmm. So they're they're two faced, and one one of their faces smile, and you know three faced at one point. The corrupted face. Well, yes. So the corruption Mm -hmm. is always behind. And it only comes out when mm. faced with so, somebody. So during an, during an election, politicians smile. That's the, I think that's what okay, the smilers yeah, do. Yeah. That's how I that's how I push that into this clumsy allegory. You say about comic strips, this would work better as a comic strip. Well, I was going to say at the start of the episode, Amy's in a nighty, and Peter Pan, Alice in exactly. Wonderland. 
and that. There's, a, there's a big Alice in Wonderland, but I might just that's just because because sort of I've been watching I've been watching Czech New Wave <laughs> cinema recently, which is well, sort of Alice in Wonderland. Alice isn't in a nighty though. No, but there's a lot of sort of well. The idea, yeah. well, that what the nighty signifies is that what you're about to watch is, however analogous it might be, it's being presented as a fairy tale. Yeah, and I think this is mm. this is where the episode gets into issues. And I'll go into why in a minute, but just to finish off the train of thought, the suspension of disbelief that David Kitchen's not feeling is because what's supposed to be being presented as a fairy tale isn't being presented as a fairy tale. And now, of course, this is Doctor Who, so you can't present it literally as a fairy tale. You have to present it figuratively as a fairy tale. And when you've got a level of analogy on top of that, you're talking three different, and it's not, and we always talk about how textured Stephen Moffat's writing is. This isn't about texture, this is about actual layers, actual strata in the writing. And you're talking about three big strata here. Mm. And the, when you have two, you can knit them together relatively easy in the production because people who make television productions are quite used to having two major strata of storyline going on at the same time and part of their job is to fit those together but when you're presented with a third one as well the fairy tale thing that sits in between that makes it that much more difficult and it means that people have to be that much more on the ball and if they don't quite get it right it means it becomes that much more apparent that it hasn't worked and the reason i bring this up is and we'll never know the truth of this, but, and this is something that I, you know, when something goes wrong or when something goes right, whatever, with Doctor Who, people either say, blame Moffat or blame RTD, or bravo Moffat or bravo RTD. But if an episode is good, the showrunner gets the credit. And if an episode is bad, the showrunner gets the blame. Whether he's written it or not, there is a huge amount of other people working on that episode. And Stephen Moffat is sitting in a little office in his back room somewhere in London, writing these scripts and sending them to Cardiff. And then production designers and carpenters and actors and a director and all these other people who are working on the episodes are doing it. 250 miles away from where Stephen Moffat's written the script. He's not in Cardiff making sure everything that's in his script turns up on screen. And I don't think that's an issue 99% of the time. But when you have an episode that, like I say, has these three huge layers in it, then the person who is ultimately pulling the strings on that episode which in production terms is the director, has to be absolutely on board with what the writer's trying to do. Or else, as Simon says, it doesn't matter how good the concepts are, if the glue that's in between them hasn't set, then, as David Kitchen says, those ideas aren't really going to fit. These deep allegories and, and ideas and themes and tones and everything else that are buried underneath, well, not buried, they're quite they're obvious. Buried. They're quite obvious, they're quite yeah. Obvious mm. To us, but for a lot of other people, they are not. And especially kids, they don't see any of that stuff. So, you know... Well, no, just to break in before you finish your point, yeah. they, don't, they don't see it 
consciously, but no. they still see it subconsciously because if something's not working in the episode, they're, they're going to notice that even if they don't notice what it is. Yeah, when you've turned the allegory into basically two buttons, I think that's when that's when the kids will start to understand it. Mm. The big thing is they might not cruelty to animals, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And Amy yeah, even has a line yeah. at the very start of the episode about cruelty to animals. Mm. But I actually thought it did hold together, so I kind of disagree with the idea that it didn't knit together. I know I made a joke about it, but actually I thought the design and and the plot and the direction, I thought it all worked. I think what, what the problem is, what people are seeing, what, how, what I felt when I first watched it, because mm. I have to go by that as well, is that you do, you know, we weren't used to Stephen Moffat's way of thinking for a start. We just weren't. Well, we'd only seen Stephen Moffat doing jigsaw puzzle stories. We'd not seen mm. him doing a story that wasn't really a jigsaw puzzle, well, apart from The Empty Child. But I everything just, I just, think, just happened. I just think it's the <laughs> very obvious what you see on the screen. For start, you have got a the whole of the UK on the back of a turtle, sorry, whale, <laughs> Terry, Terry mm-hmm. um, you know, flying through space. And it looks amazing. But it's bonkers, mm-hmm. you know. Logically, it's ridiculous. Uh, you know, it's just kill the moon land, isn't it? Um, and then yeah. you go back inside, and you've got telephone boxes. Oh, you got all that. things. Yeah, that yeah. I know. We all love it because we love the Avengers and the Prisoner. But it's 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 not needed. It's, it's a weird kind of thing to put in there that doesn't make any logical sense. Why thousands of years in the future we would have telephone boxes and traffic lights well, to, it's a to very, show it looks like the UK? It's a bit. But it's part of that. That's obvious a, and crass. But that's, but that's what happens design. with dystopian. That's a convention of dystopian story. Regression. Is. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Regression, it's the same yeah. as Genesis. It's the same as Battlestar, the remake of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. They have like telephones with cords on them and sort of windy up. They, they've gone... They have. And it's the same as with Star Trek not, as well. They're it's, not the same as, you know, if you were to go into the future, you know, we ha- why have a telephone box? That's what I'm saying. Well, Which I, is exactly like a yeah. 1970s telephone box. Not the ones we've got now. I but, think you know, you know I think it's actually meant to be more sixties and seventies. Okay, but what it reminded me of is actually life on Mars. I always thought it was particularly when um, spoilers when she go, when she goes into the the booth and she's played this this video and it's this kind of open university lecturer in front of kind of nineteen eighties nineteen things Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> but that took me right back to life on Mars that moment. Yeah. And also yeah, there was even a test card girl. Mm. In the lift, and I think it's oh, picking so up from that. For work out where I saw but I think, it's like but I think it's picking picking up like retro retro things and putting them in. That's what we I do. I mean, I absolutely love that idea. Yeah. But that's what we do as a society. We, yeah, but I just say we today is National Record Store Day. Retro okay. is the new future. Yeah, it's called haunt, hauntology. Yeah. And, and, and the Doctor thing Who is, as well, too. Doctor Who in series five was being made on a much smaller budget than it had been for the previous four years. So, if they wanted these retro ideas, they had to do them on a budget. Yeah. So, yeah. everything that yeah. you've got in there is what basically they could lay their think, hands on. I think if if they hadn't have done that, they would have got something more like, okay. um, more like uh, what's the the see the season the series one episode. Um, which is it happens in the middle and it's got uh, the editor uh, oh long game yeah Yeah. it's like the long game I mean that's a similar sort of setting it's a dystopian future yeah but But it looks futuristic it's like Blade Runner but with uh, that's less successful for me 
Yeah, 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 it no, is, it is, right. it is, yeah, it is. Big Brother still going, seriously. But you've got the Ark in Space as well, remember? Mm, and this is supposed yeah. to be solar flares. Is it the same century? I don't, I don't know. Solar flares and flares. It can't be the same, <laughs> can it? But in the, the Ark in Space, you know, we didn't need all of the little uh, tricks. We didn't need the visual kind of... Um, Motifs? Yeah, yeah. That, that we've got in front of us. We don't need to be told it's the UK. No. Because what we see in the Argus space is, is not the UK, it's the whole of humanity in a very, <laughs> very sterile and very believable but instead future. Of, oh, but if that was in 2000 AD, you'd lap it up. But it's not in 2000 AD. It's but in Doctor it, Who on the of, screen. And that's, that's but instead of Ark in space... I do like it. Though. Instead of Ark in space, <laughs> instead of Ark in space, think Robots of Death. And think how successful the use of Art Deco was in Robots of Death. Yes. And that had no but reason to be there. it's still not saying mm. this is Art Deco. It's very subtly. Yes, but what it's doing subtle, is the same thing, but choosing yeah. a different period. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's drawing things but from the past. But you don't get an Art Deco lamp in, in, in any of that, do you? On the sand miner. Whereas no. here, you would have Art Deco lamps everywhere. Yes. And, yeah. You know, so it's almost. It, it struck me as it's almost like they've evacuated the Earth and they've packed everything on the shop. Earth. Yeah. Into this spaceship randomly, well, and they're just making do with the stuff. Do you know, I, I think yeah, what it is, is we're so used to little explanations from RTD, aren't we? We don't get it from Seymour. We don't need it really because mm. the stories are so good. But you know, it, it, if the Doctor just said, or Amy just said, "God, this is weird. This is like the 1960s. Why is it like this?" Oh well, this is just one part of a huge spaceship, and this is the retro bit, or something ridiculous. You throw that out then, and yes. so many people would stop whinging about the fact. I that think this, just this kill, is a bit I, catchy. It would just kill it dead. Which county were we in? Yeah, I think because <laughs> if it was Cornwall. <laughs> It's very yeah. likely that it will still be like that. <laughs> Simon can only say that because he is Cornish. I hope. No, no he's shaking his head. As, as a podcast, well, yeah, you? most of my life in Cornwall, but I was born elsewhere. This podcast goes global suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, talking of which, where was, I didn't get the where were the other spaceships from the the rest of the world? Well, this is what I was going to bring up. This is part of the fairy tale aspect, and I think this is part of. Perhaps, and there's a wider complaint here that people have made as well. Yes, there are other spaceships out there, and yes, presumably those spaceships, including the Scottish one, have actually got proper engines. Mm. And probably then, therefore, because of those engines, they're travelling at a different speed, so they'll be elsewhere. But, just as in, in the Forest of the Night... The only people you really ever see are the Doctor and the kids that he's met. And you don't see other people. Because in Hansel and Gretel and in Little Red Riding Hood, the forest isn't full of people wandering around, you know? That's how a fairy tale works. You isolate your characters. And just as in just as in those fairy tales, because this is a fairy tale, the starship is isolated. I don't it's, it's sorry. need sorry, it's needed. It needs to be isolated because because whale. otherwise the other spaceships could we'll just rescue it. him. No, the other spaceship would see the whale as well. well. Yeah. <laughs> and that would spoil the entire society. Well, also, and, and, and you collapse the allegory as well. The whole point exactly. about this individual. Yeah. I mean, and it also it also mirrors the story that follows it, which is Victory of the da- Victory of the Daleks, which is about a country which is isolated and under siege and is riding on the back of its own space world, which is the guys fighting the Spitfire pilots, the army. But it's so got these Daleks two, in it, and they look like smarties. What's the matter with you, man? <laughs> but, but what I don't... The wider complaint. Oh, God. What I don't see is... I, I think this is one of the one of those episodes where it isn't a fairy tale. I don't think there are. It's allegory, yes, but fairy tale... I don't know, I don't know where the fairy tale elements are. What, I think, in this, no, this one? Yeah. It's it's on the screen. It's the kind of the aesthetic, isn't it? Isn't it the look? Isn't it the design? No, 
I mean, the only thing is the Queen, it's, the Queen really has a bit of a fairy tale feel to her. But the storyline and also the design, they're not, they're not fairy tale designs. They're, There's a spaceship they're on of, the back of a whale. In space, but that's not fairy tale. That's fantasy, right? Like, okay, but, but okay. I think, and I think there's a but the, because, because Stephen Moffat does use fairy tale, as you say, the Forest of the Night. Well, he, it comes into later, but no, it comes in into situation. what happens at the end, and I think we get bogged down at the end. It's a fairy tale because okay, it's signalled as a fairy tale because she comes in in her ninety, and then halfway through, there's a bit. Just like in, oh God, what's the one where they fall asleep and forget what's happened? Alice in Wonderland? No. Was it oh, there's Alice in Wonderland that happens as well. But Alice in Wonderland isn't a fairy tale. No, no, there's something else. There's one, oh, what is it? It's one of the Hansel and Gretel things. Okay. Mm. They go into the forest and they fall asleep and they forget. Okay. Which is what happens with Amy. And then at the end, I think what is supposed, and this is where I think it gets lost, I think at the end, what is supposed to happen is that you have, for want of a better way to phrase it, the Red Riding Hood moment where the grandma suddenly turns into the wolf and Amy is supposed to be in the position of suddenly seeing the wolf, except it's reversed because what happens is this evil creature that's got these tentacles that are killing people suddenly revealed to be the benign beneficiary I mean I, th- I think because most fairy tales are allegories yeah but so I think this really is the point Matt. A, I think this is supposed to be there and I think this is what the production's lost yeah you have got a red riding hood you know the, the queen walks around it's dressed well, as red riding yeah so I yeah the, the queen is the one the one sort of and the red is graphic. Pinocchio a real is that a fairy tale no, no, that's it's not Carlo Collodi. It's a children's story. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So so it's it not wasn't, a fairy it wasn't based tale. on yeah. an old. And I, st- and I think no. the nighty because right, they all fall into well stomach. But that this is it, Matt. I think, in spite of how much you like it, I think this is why it's confused because you've got these. Because there's no question at the start when she comes in in a nighty and doesn't get dressed that that's signifying something. She's like Wendy, well, think, and Matt is like yeah, you know, but Peter, the, Peter the child. Pan. Yeah, but Peter Pan isn't a fairy tale. But, but but my point. So the, the knighty does. No, have, it's not technically. The knighty no. does have a have a position. So she, it's it's kind of like her innocence. Okay, so, so we're okay. It's, maybe it's fairy tale is kind of, the wrong yeah, expression yeah, yeah, then. But what I'm saying is, okay, yeah. children's story, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying is, yeah. when you get to the end of the story, that aspect of it has got lost or confused along the way. Yeah. And then you get into, and I don't know whether this is an issue with the writing or the production because the writing to me seems good mm. but mm. by the same token I think Moffat overemphasizes things that don't need to be overemphasized the speech at the end becomes all about the children mm. which mirrors how it starts with the children but I think that emphasis is in the wrong place because it takes you away from the actual decision mm. which isn't to do with the children and it takes you away from the story, and the story has been about... The story's not about the whale, and the story's not about the children. The story is about the lengths that grown-ups will go to mm. in order to protect something. Mm. And that something, in this instance, is a way of life. It's not the children, and it's not the whale, it's the way of life. And not just the way of life, the actual fact of life, the fact that and that's still business alive. about seeing the whale like the Doctor... I mean, the yeah. last of a species. Yeah, that was very nice. So when you it's get, nice, but it distracts from... When you get to those speeches mm-hmm. at the end, all of a sudden, the sense of the story's lost. Hmm. 
It does and feel I, like two separate. Yeah, parts. and I and I think that's an issue. I think that I think there are two things going on here. I think, as I say, Stephen Moffat's in one place and the production's in another. So whatever Stephen Moffat's intentions were, I don't think they've been quite translated. But I also think there's another issue in that this was Stephen Moffat's first series and mm. I think he was probably finding he was doing a lot more work than perhaps he'd expected. And maybe, and people have said, oh, this could have done with another draft. And I think, and Stephen Moffat, no, yeah. Stephen Moffat has said it himself. He was asked in production notes or somewhere in Doctor Who magazine, he was said, what one story of yours would you change? And he said, Beast Below could have done with another draft because okay. I wasn't happy with the result. Mm. So it's not like he hasn't even said it himself. And I think it's true. I think I think this story is so close it's got... to not having any of those problems that but another draft But could I don't have... know. I mean, look at the script. If you read the script, if you look, we all watched it and listened to the words and really took it on board. Matt, you found a lot more deeper things than any of us in this one. But you know, from you know, from the from the script alone, mm, I'd love to see the script. Yeah, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Because I didn't have a problem with any of the script. Actually, no. I thought it was fine. I thought it was quite well balanced. Yeah, but I. It's only the translation on. Do you know what screen it has? It's got the. Seems to lose it. Weirdly, it mirrors the end of the world. Obviously, being the second story. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Of yeah. a new Doctor, mm. and aesthetically, it's got that end of the world feel to it. Yeah. Where it's all visual, but it doesn't necessarily. I don't know, it's almost like the production hasn't caught up with the writing style. Yeah, I think in some ways the visuals work against the story. Mm. And, you know, that's part of that, whether you want to call it fairy tale or children's story or whatever. Mm. I think the... It's quite distracting. Yeah, the visuals... There's one story being told in the visuals and there's another story being told in the narrative. And they're both good stories and you kind of... If you think about something like Heaven's and you Sin. get, and again, I'm going to use the word deceived, and I don't mean it in a pejorative sense. I don't mean it as in you're stupid, you've been deceived. But what I mean is, because you like the visuals and because you like the narrative, you kind of think you like the visuals and the narrative. But actually, it's I wonder if it's two separate things that you like the visuals and you like the narrative, even though somebody else, me for example, will see the visuals and see the narrative. And see them working against each other rather than together. For mm. me, for me, they fitted perfectly. I didn't have a problem with, because for me, the visuals were, as you said, it's sort of sixties, seventies, eighties, kind of trappings culture, and it's just packed with those. And the fact that we're talking about voting and we're talking about <laughs> politics, because it's all about the vote and it's all about the politics in this. And that's so important in the 70s and 80s. That was when it was the last time well, politics actually do you meant something. Think, in the you country. know, the, the, the um, oh, what do they call it? The teaser. You know, the, the, the first. The trail. The trail. Oh, the yeah, cold the open, cold, you mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, uh, with, with the child going down the lift. Yes. Mm. Kind of throws you off. Well, that does direction. lead you to expect it to be a horror story about these smilers taking children. Yeah. And then afterwards. You know that's, but that's the children that's come on, back. That's on purpose, though, isn't it? Because it's all about, it's all about second guessing what you're seeing on screen. So mm. the the smilers are villainous. Terence Hardiman. The, there's a reason why they cast Terence Hardiman because he's he known as like the demon villain. headmaster. Yeah. Mm. Looks like a villain. He turns out to be, he, to be just as bad or good as uh, as everybody else. Yeah. The mm. whale that's you think is going to be the big monster. It's got flashing tentacles and. And even the Doctor sort of thinks of it as being a threatening presence. I, I see Terence Hardiman's character as a kind of a religious analogy, really. Yeah, but you do well, now. Look, but so when you first see him on screen, 
you aren't oh, supposed yeah. to get that immediately. Yeah, absolutely. But also, he looks a bit like a, a vicar. That's the. Uh, mm. But also, he's, he's maintaining the status quo. Yeah. But the story that's being told until the reveal is that he's in some way deceiving the queen, mm. and it turns out that he's deceiving her because she's told him mm. to. And mm. yeah. um, it's the deception itself that means she doesn't remember. So you mentioned religion. Is is the church actually being thrown in this without us realizing it? Well, it takes place in the church at the end, and the winders are all dressed up as monks. There's, uh, there's. Uh, Again, it's another Again. layer that doesn't fit in with everything else. There's, there's an argument for saying that organised religion maintains the status quo that keeps things in place, keeps the... Uh... In in the UK, yeah. Yeah. I was going to bring up that about half an hour ago and the conversation moved on. One of the complaints that some people have levelled at this, or one of the things that some people have pointed out is it's very nationalistic because it's Starship UK. But I think if you're, and they're saying, oh, this is very, uh, mm. this is very um, separatist. And I suppose if you watch it now, on the eve of another election, which is about the European Union, it looks like a separatist, separatist philosophy that's being espoused. But actually what people doing that are forgetting is that this was about the UK election in 2010. Yeah. Mm. And that's why. And of course, the story behind the spaceships taking off is the planet Earth suddenly finds itself in danger. Everybody builds these spaceships quick and gets off the planet mm. quick. So, of course, you'd have a spaceship for each country because that's where the people are who need to get off the planet. And also, you have to remember, this is a dystopia, not a utopia. This is a horrible place to live. Mm. So, we've got, we've got a, an isolated country on the back of a whale and it's not a nice place to be. So, it would work yeah. in, in this context. It's saying, you know... You don't want to be you don't want rather to be than we own. don't want yeah. you to be. It's yeah. going to breed more corruption. And maybe the other thing we didn't get to see was uh, just everyday life. We, we don't have time. Yeah, no, we don't. You know, right. But even in yeah. gridlock, you got a little bit of the street you got, life. You've got the schools. Yeah, we got to see a, the schools yeah. and the, you got the, the politics yeah, and, and the royalty. And the streets and people... You got enough of that street, enough people walking around that even though you didn't see what they were doing, you saw that they were doing something. Mm. I still think, I, it's, there are stories where you're supposed to believe that it's a world that's populated and they don't do anything. But I think this story does do enough to give you the idea that this world's plenty populated. And I think we, we always talk about Moffat taking RTD's ideas and adding a twist to them. And this is really exactly the same as I've forgotten the, the name of it again. What's it? It's so unmemorable. The series, <laughs> series one, the long game, the okay. long game. So it's basically exactly the same as the long game. It's a big satire. It's a big, it's a big allegory. But the long game satirizes the media and media control. This goes even further and satirizes an entire political state and an attitude of the electorate. And it does it with more interesting visuals more interesting streets so there's the same street but it's so much more interesting here than in the long game the long game you had cronk burgers or whatever and the long was, game just didn't sell it did it cronk no. burgers yeah and that just that just and it just i mean yeah, the, you could the, remember the name of the episode you remember cronk burgers the right? good so, uh, the good thing about <laughs> the the long the game cronk burgers oh, come back yeah. <laughs> and also in in the long Therapy. game you've got a monster in it who turns out to be Malevolent. It's a really yeah. kind of simplistic. Yeah. I agree. This one, it's really complex and it's yeah. really, yeah, I liked it. <laughs> but my so other bad. issue, so and uh, none of these are big issues, by the way, mm. as we'll discover when we get mm. to the rounding up and the scores. But what I'm saying is, you know, I don't think it's a perfect episode by any stretch, and these are the reasons why. And the other, the, the other one 
it's again something that I brought up last week and that we'll get into next week is Amy's role at the end. And this week it's for Amy to... There's that scene which feels a bit shoehorned in where... The, and there's a lovely line, no human has anything to say to me today, which mm. is brilliantly delivered by Matt Smith. But the bit where in the companion's very first trip, the doctor turns around to her and says, you've done a bad thing, I'm taking you home afterwards. Mm. I wasn't sold on that no, as a character wasn't. beat for the Doctor. Mm. And because I wasn't sold on that... Maybe it's just delivered too strong. No, no, no. It I was where it is in the series. Yeah, it's... Too early on. No, no, no. No, it's... Yes, but from a metatextual point of view, you know that Amy's in it for the year. So if the Doctor turns around to her and says in the very second episode, you've done something I don't agree with, I'm taking you home, you know on a metatextual level, that that's going to get turned around, which leads me to where this point is going. But on a non-metatextual level, you also feel if one thing like that was going to be enough for him to take her home, why would he have taken her out there in the first place? Mm. Yeah. But I think it was supposed to mirror that, oh, you know, you stupid apes blundering around on the planet, or, going home after your baked yeah. beans. Or Father's Day, the Father's, Father's Day, Day thing. thing. Yeah. yeah, but he never... But in those instances, he never actually takes anybody out there in the first place and then takes them home afterwards. Well, Adam, he does. Yeah, but not, like, well, Adam's slightly different because well, she's the one yeah. that Rose takes on the TARDIS. Yes. yeah. And yeah. then it's, uh, and he does something, like, way worse than what Amy's done. Mm-hmm. Amy's only done, in her very first trip, what anybody else would have yeah. done on their very yeah. first trip. I think, I, yeah, I think it's an argument the fact that she kind of embodies the fact that she's behaved just like the rest of the human race. Yes. Yeah. So she's a tar- so, she's a target for the, the doctor can't can't this say is, this yeah. thing to the entire human race. Because actually, I think it's it the becomes, right place. It makes sense for that to happen on her she first becomes, trip. Yeah, she becomes a delegate for the entire human mm, race yeah. in that moment. Yeah. And don't forget, this is you know the same author who, you know gives the blue tick to kill the moon mm. four years later where you've got the doctor telling her you're the human being you've got to make the decision yeah clara in this instance and obviously yes. you know what i'm saying is it didn't feel like a natural character beat yeah. it felt shoehorned in it felt clumsy and therefore when you get to the bit where amy works out what's going on mm. that also feels clumsy not just for that reason because it felt like yeah. the Matt Smith bit was in order to get to the bit where Amy does it. Yeah. But also because it's Amy's first trip and she's made such a fundamental mistake, you're thinking, how can it be the same character who then makes such a fundamental you know, leap of logic to work out how the story ends? It's that step where she steps about. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's brilliant. We were both hanging on the edge, me and Matt, and then you came in yeah. and trumped yeah. us. It's fine. You, you, you managed to interrupt both of us. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Never ever. Looking at worded edgeways towards the beginning of the So process. I think the problem is similar to. Similar to the. I think with the 11th hour, we were talking about the, the pacing being odd. The whole last think, five minutes just feels clumsy. I, pa- I, I think it's right, the pacing is odd. But that, that moment, I think. It's it's allegory logic. I think it's different. It's like kill the moon. There's a there's a different sort of. We were, talk, we were talking about suspension, suspension of disbelief. Logic. You have to suspend your disbelief and tune into a particular style of storytelling. And in an allegory, then there's a particular sort of broad story where well, where I was people become about. ciphers. Yeah, you can pause just to let me. No, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of agreeing with you. But what I'm saying little is, flags. that's the sort of, okay, that's the fairy tale stroke children's fiction thing. And 
you know, her her making the being the one who makes the leap of logic. And again, this is why I don't feel the production and the script quite marry because mm. I'm not sold on it. It feels clumsy. Some somewhere somebody along the line has dropped the ball on how so that episode What was Simon going to say? I was going to yeah. say that point where uh, another thing. Amy I didn't suddenly <laughs> suddenly makes that decision is the rose moment. That's the moment where you know, as far as the series is concerned, yeah. is. How does she earn her place in the TARDIS? Yeah. And it's because she takes that, st- she makes that step up from her human programming. Yeah, that just like that... Rose does, you know, because Rose is just this normal girl, and it you're feels thinking, like... why is she, you know, she's just a normal girl? What does the Doctor <clears throat> see in her? And, and again, then... what does the Doctor see in Amy? It's and a lot, then it's a loss of innocence. So she starts the episode as the innocent in her nighty, mm. and then slowly, during so by the end of the episode. She's actually a fully mature companion, ready to tackle the Daleks yeah, in yeah. the 1940s. And what and what's happening is Stephen Moffat is feeling duty bound to do the thing that Russell T Davis did yeah. in selling to an audience not just that the companion has an emotional right to be there, but also has a intellectual right to be mm-hmm. there as well. And you know, even in um, Smith and Jones, you get the scene where the Doctor's watching Martha working things out and saying, "You're so much better than all these other people," which is almost like he's winking at the audience and saying, "Take this one, eh?" Yeah. So yeah. the abdicate button, abdicate button, abdicate, abdicate. Is that something you put on your boils? Ab- abdicate, abdicate, <laughs> abdicate. I'm a bit itchy. Yeah. Today. I need a bit of abdicate. No, no actually, abdicate, abdicate is something you put on to um, <laughs> cure yourself of fleas, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, this abdicate button. Um, who, who made it? Who created it? Because obviously that saves the day. The Queen that's, did. That's the saves the day button. Well, if the Queen, whoever it was that originally set off on that spaceship, because they say the whale came down, we built the spaceship on the back of it. And, we built the city. Yeah, go on. And you know, this is another thing I've heard, is that some people have world. said, why? And this is what I thought when I first watched it, but actually it's solved in the dialogue. People have said, why? If the whales come down to take you away, would you suddenly start sending electric shocks through it? But actually, it's in the dialogue that they build the spaceship on the back of the whale and they're giving the whale electric shocks right from when they first take off. So that's not an issue. But the issue that you're talking about is who put those buttons there? The people who built the spaceship in the first place because they knew that if the people on the spaceship realised that they were on the back of this innocent creature... You know, it's not whether it happens. But so it's we're whether saying that the society was happen. pretty much set up from the off. Yes. As opposed to developed over the years. That yes. From the off, they thought, right, we're going to do this to the creature. No one's mm. going to really like what we're doing. So we, best, we, must... we best put in this strange yeah. thing where the... Yeah, it's okay. society, yeah. a society built on corruption. And if the Queen ever finds out a little monkey boys, you go and, you know... I'm surprised they sure wired up the abdicate button. They must have thought, oh, they'll never use it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's rusty because it's never been used. But um, well, she, actually, after she's pressed it, she's still the queen, so she doesn't actually abdicate. So maybe the abdicate button doesn't work. There you oh, are. It's, it's, yeah, except it means abdicate responsibility. <laughs> yes, but mm. I mean, Amy... but she does actually say in the dialogue she's abdicating her role as queen as well if she presses it. Yeah. But Amy, I mean, they, they've done this lovely thing where they show the the rose moment where mm. she's working it all out. The Doctor hasn't sussed us out. He's super intelligent, but he's, all he's thinking about is the whale. She's worked it out. She's put all the pieces together. She's been told by the Doctor to look and see and work stuff out. So she's taken aboard what he said. He's done. She's done that. She's become the Doctor for and that actually, moment. And actually, before you go 
on. You get that lovely scene at the start. <laughs> <laughs> but this is why I break just, in halfway. Just because building up <laughs> to the big climax. I'm not going to say that. Point <laughs> no, no, keep it in your head. But this is why I break in halfway, because this won't be pertinent when you get to the end of your sentence. But there's a lovely scene at the start where the Doctor is seen showing her how to work it, things out. Exactly, yeah. But she remembers <clears> this, and that's obviously a beautiful part of script writing where it comes back and it gives her the rose moment. And, you know, it even shows you logically in her head how she's got to that conclusion. But it's still a massive thing to have to have done is to whack that bun and have a thousand percent confidence that that is the correct thing to do. And it will definitely just, you know, nothing's going to happen. Set things right. It's going to set things right. Mm. It, that leap of logic is just a little bit too Ooh, much Just for say me. this while I remember it. That love, There's a, a line in there where, where the Doctor says, if I do such and such, I can no longer be the Doctor. I'll find himself another name. Is that what he actually says, if I do such and such? It's got to the hour and a half mark, surely. By now, is that foreshadowing? Obviously, the War Doctor. Except, of course, Stephen Moffat didn't know that the War Doctor was going to be in, so it's not Mm. um, deliberate foreshadowing. Mm. But it's potentially one of those instances where Stephen Moffat, knowing that he's got the problem and has to introduce the War Doctor, takes things from places that he's already written stuff. Ideas that are not meant to go anywhere, he suddenly takes places. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we haven't mentioned Matt Smith that much, apart from the fact he was, in my eyes, he was perfect from start to finish. How good was this, this doctor? He is very good at Oh my this, God, yeah. he's amazing. Mm. Amazing from start to finish. Did, it, did you have a problem with him at all? Never. No. I liked the way he jumped over the bench. That yes. was my favourite Matt Smith moment. I <laughs> loved, I loved, 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 loved the bit. Did where, you love it? Yes, I did. Where Amy's still looking at the monitor, and the Doctor's already out and yes. looking yes. through the monitor. Oh, so Stephen Moffat. <laughs> still one of the best moments. That's a, but there's, a, but that's, a, that's also a thing you see in this, because you see that in Victory of the, the, the Daleks as well. You see the Doctor on a monitor in black and white. Like you're watching him in the 1960s. So I'm, not, mm. I'm talking about Victory of the Daleks, but I'm not going to be here to talk about it. Mm. But but there's those those moments on the television when you see the Daleks and you see the Doctor, and it looks like you're watching something like Power of the Daleks or Evil of the Daleks. Yeah. And that's mm. what they've done here as well. I really like those those moments. Well, kind of speaking of Power yeah. of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks, we were supposed to see bits of them in Victory of the Daleks, but we'll talk about that next week. Oh, I won't. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> Was Lee here for the? Were you here for the eleventh hour talk? No. no. Is he giving? A, is he going to get a chance to give his opinion? Do you want to give us a score on the eleventh hour, and then should we score the beast below? Yeah, nine out of ten. You liked it then? I loved it. Is that eleventh hour? Eleventh <laughs> hour. Yeah. Okay. Eleven out of ten. No, nine out of ten. Okay, then it, was, it wasn't perfect. But has anybody got anything else there. to bring up about the beast below, or should we score it? Seeing as we've done it again, we've talked for longer than the episode. <laughs> I think we've run everything out. We're yeah. Going to okay, then Lee, sticking with you, what would you give for the beast below? Before I say that, um, my son said this would have been great as a two-parter, which is an interesting thing for a sixteen-year-old boy to say. I thought. I wow. think this. I That's think this is that. Stephen Moffat actually finding just enough story to fill 45 minutes right mm. at the beginning of his tenure actually but what it was that the, when he said that i said well what do you think about this do you feel like if doctor it wasn't a doctor episode it could be a pilot for a brand new series a bit like battlestar galactica but in a really quirky way he went yeah absolutely that's that's exactly what i was thinking it's, it's kind of 
it's got its own world. It's almost <clears throat> a bit of a waste that we're just seeing a glimpse of it because it's such an interesting In other words, world. what he's really saying is he'd like to have spent another episode in this location yeah. rather than the story needing another episode. Yeah, done a gridlock, yeah. done a new earth. Yeah, possibly. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, marking, eh? Seven out of ten. Matt, I think I'll, I'll go with eight for this one. After watching it again, it was sort of six, seven before I, I rewatched it, but I've, I've got yeah. excited about it now. I've, I've gone <laughs> so off I'm as well. Great. I think I was just going to give it a six yeah. before I watched it. Yeah. And also before hearing all your gump about the allegory and the political <laughs> stuff. I'm full of gump. Come <laughs> <laughs> on! Good to get the gump I, out. I'm, I'm with Matt, actually. It's in the same reaction as Lee, really. That um, I, I, always, I never disliked it. I never disliked it. But it was always a seven out of ten because it just didn't feel like it, it fired on all cylinders as, as it could have. But I think it's definitely worth an eight for its again for its ambition. I was going about these things ambition mm. and for its comic book look. It's two thousand AD. Yeah, yeah, kind of FIFA Defender thing we've been talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah Star Wars. I'm love Star Wars. I'm wavering as well between seven and eight, but I think I'm a full on the seven because of the problems I was talking about. Mm. It's better than I remembered it, but yeah. those issues, and I do remember those from first time around, and I can't, I can't get past them. I'm, got, mm. I'm quite excited because that's two in a row that have been better mm. than I remembered it, that have improved watching it in this run. What will happen when we watch Victory of the Daleks? <laughs> hey, and even though I'm, you won't be I'm, here, you must watch it. Okay, I'll watch Victory of the Daleks. And, then, and I'll talk to myself. <laughs> at home, at home, lying, lying alone in bed. Just one thing to say. <laughs> no, Jr. Don't touch me there. <laughs> like I do normally. I shan't be there, of course. But he'll just be listening to me in his ears. Oh yeah, oh. I can listen to the podcast at last. I can listen to the podcast, and I won't know what's going to be said. Uh-huh. You don't want him going in your ears. No, anyway. Um, I I have the iPad resting on the pillow next to me sometimes. Do you? I listen to people on the... Yeah. What you need to have... because I'm so lonely. What iTunes <laughs> needs to have is little heads, you know, like all of our heads with moving mouths. Yeah. So when JR talks, yeah, yeah, his little mouth moves and you can what, have a look at him. That's really what I need, my iPad with a mouth. <laughs> <laughs> or, just, or just get four... Or just get four bobbleheads and ascribe names to them, Lee, yeah. Simon, JR and so on, and just bob them when why, we come up on the podcast. Why do you think I don't have that in it's my bedroom whole, already? Okay. It's like a okay, quick round of away. questions then. If you were a bobblehead that exists, that you can buy in shops, that people listening to this podcast were going to buy so they could bobble your head when you were talking... Which bobblehead would you like them Lee, to buy, Lee? Lee has a sort of look of a bobblehead about him, so possibly <laughs> he's a good one to start with. Yes. I was going to say just replace my head with a piece of tumbleweed and two eyes. Wow. One? Yeah. That's nice. Oh, go on. Which just bobblehead like would you like to be? Yeah. I don't get what you're asking me. I'll start it off. I'll start it off. Go on, oh, go on, you... go on then. All right, thanks. Um, <laughs> C-3PO. Oh, God. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I get that. It's sort of slightly, oh, camp, slightly camp waiter. Then. Yeah. Why not? Okay. Why not? Oliver Hardy. I, t- yes. I tell you what, though, the um, audio book version of The Force Awakens. If you listen to it, the guy on there does a really good Anthony Daniels impression, but interspersed amongst it are American pronunciation of words. It's really funny. Oh, yeah. He put this really over-the-top effect on his voice to make it sound like it's a robot. But it distorts and completely blares out of your car stereo speakers. Mm. 
Right, if I was a bobblehead, I would be James T. Kirk. Okay. All right. All right. Because I go around saving planets and shagging women. Mm. Mm. Not at all sexist. <laughs> I was thinking the aesthetic. Thing. And Malcolm McDowell kills you. Whatever. Well, okay, I then. I, I would probably be Oliver Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I don't think you need any more explanation. There's a lot of people think you're going to be R2D2. <laughs> yeah, maybe. You'd what? be Oliver Hardy because you're lardy and because you're much funnier when you shut your mouth. <laughs> I can't believe I said that. That going, may have to be an edit. Lee knows I love him, really. Or some of him, anyway. Well, he's touching my foot. Don't, don't look at me, I can't think of... Chewbacca. I thought of Chewbacca, <laughs> but he's, he's basically Harrison Ford's dog, isn't he? Yes, actually, you're my dog. Right? Actually, no, do you know what? Um, <laughs> oh, what's he called? You're... Ghostbusters. Harold Ramis' oh, character, Eagle. Eagle. No, no, it's starting to. No, you're, uh, it seems like you're trying to assess my character now. <laughs> no, I was going to say, no, actually, well. from the monsters or Adam's family, whatever it is, um, Herman Monster. Yeah. No, the, 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 no, the Lurch. Um, oh, Lurch. 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 Okay, okay. I can be even worse than mine. <laughs> that is how he answers the door when we come round here to record. <laughs> You rang, <laughs> and then and then I make you all cups of tea. You do there we go. Yeah, really good. Yes. Um, all right. Now that we've established, is that while he's steaming? Yeah. Now that we've established what bobbleheads we'd all be in a section of the podcast that I am almost certainly going to have to completely edit out. <laughs> uh, film reviews. I have three films. I'll be really quick. Before you go there, can I just say one last thing on The Beast Balloon? We watched it on uh, Blu-ray player, didn't we? DVD version on the Blu-ray player? Yeah. You set it up, scaled it. Mm. It's the first time I've seen it like that, which is almost like a 48 frames a second type of view. Yeah, but that's not how it upscales it, Lee. Isn't it? Well, what the TV's done? I don't know what was going on there. I don't know what was going on there, but it looked It looked very video. No, it didn't. No, no, no. no. What do you mean? Like video? It looked like forty-eight frames per second. It looked like video. It wasn't the TV. um, Might have been the TV. Adding frames. Is that set to forty-eight fps? No idea. It's. I bought a TV. Does that weird thing to um, Pixar movies? Yeah, but you'd know because you'd have it on everything. Yeah, but then I wouldn't know because everything looks the same. So I I didn't see. Does everything look like it's filmed like EastEnders? Even films. Um, I don't know because I've had the TV for ages. Is it a Panasonic? I, I watch. Uh, yeah, I think so. Anyway, well, yeah. just my right. point. My sister's got a very small Italian, yeah. and it's very weird watching Pixar movies. They look yeah. like old CGI animations right. rather than having that filmic kind okay. of sheen. Exactly, yeah. and the filmic sheen oh, as well was missing from this. I was going to say I didn't. The CGI that was before. jumping out like anything. It, it mm. estimates frames between the frames. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. Which is basically what Vidfire does. Didn't yeah. like Except it. Vidfire actually makes them. Don't like your telly, Matt. Kind of well, sort it out. <laughs> All right, and I make you cups of tea off. and everything. <laughs> oh my god, telly cup of tea. What's more important? Tell- cup telly. of tea. Yeah, actually, come to think of it. All right, three films to review. One is Snow White: A Tale of Terror, which is the mid nineties film of the Snow White story with Sigourney Weaver as the Wicked Witch. Blimey, Governor. Um, Why did you have to review that? DVDs I'm reviewing for the magazine. Sorry. I asked for it. I thought it might be interesting. Uh, I've not seen it and I was curious. I've seen it now and I'm no longer curious. Mm -hmm. And that's the review for that. (laughs) Moving on. No, I tell you what it is. Um, 
It is, in the 1990s, it is twilight at three times the speed. Wow. Which can only be a wow. good thing. Yeah. Look at him fly up those no, trees. It really wasn't a good thing. It was. It was seriously. It was Twilight. It was taking exactly the same story beats as Twilight. It was a teen angst love story okay. on on the radio set against well, a fairy tale quite, vampiric background. When, when so we at least it's quite timely though, when we because did the, the new Huntsman oh, yeah, yeah. is out as well. Mm. That's probably why. Yeah. When we did the radio show, we had to find something positive about Twilight. That was one of the things. One of the sections called Challenge. Polishing the Nerd. So basically, we had to take a film that was universally hated or loved, Marmite or whatever, and then see if we can find anything positive in it. Oh my God, what a hard task Twilight, Twilight was. Mm. I only found one scene where you know they're in the woods, and the woods look beautiful. And that's all I could find one that good, was any good about the film. One the woods look good in one no, scene. No, no, no. The first Twilight movie's Don't. got a great Don't. scene at the start where the nerdy character tries to chat up the girl by showing her his box of worms. <laughs> but one good, one good thing about and Twilight... And actually funny. One good thing about Twilight is it encourages children to go back to Jane Austen and read her. <laughs> it does. So that's a, you know... I don't know. Even the teenagers in my does, book group don't like it. God. He does scale those trees like Spider-Man out of the old eighties, t- no seventies TV series. Oh, I love that. The one with the bracelet. Yeah. Oh. Oh, his arms are literally sliding, mm. but he's still going up because he's being pulled up by a rope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, I'll move on from that because I don't think there's a lot more to say about that. Dark Signal is a British movie. Featuring, um, I thought it was new brown toothpaste. No, it's got um, Gareth David Lloyd in it. Um, oh, right, Yanto from Torchwood. <laughs> it's part of his stellar, stellar, stellar movie career. <laughs> <clears throat> I tell you what, the issue with this film is is that it's all a bit cliched, and if you're going to do cliches in the movie, you've got to really disguise them. And the director attempts to disguise them by throwing the emphasis out of whack. But because the emphasis is thrown out of whack, not only do you still get the cliches, but you also get this really oddly emphasised film. So what happens is, um, Siwan Morris, I think her name is, who is the um, kid's mother in, um, in The Forest of the Night, who has that dreadful reaction scene at the end when the other kid comes back. She's actually a really good actress. She was in Mine on Mine. She was fantastic. Mm. She's in this playing a radio DJ at a station that is about to go from analogue to digital and centralised. So they're getting rid of all their DJs so that it's now going to be like one of those stations where they have imported programming from the centralised stations, right? So it's her last night. Gareth David Lloyd plays her engineer they're in the station up on this hill looking over the town entirely on their own and concurrently with this story oh they get a psychic in <laughs> as <Right>. their last guest <laughs> and Siobhan Morris I think that's her name Siobhan is that how you pronounce it I don't is it, know it's spelt a Sioban no 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 no, no. Oh, okay. is there it's an, Welsh it's a Welsh there, name is there an A and an E in it there's it's no not, E in it. It's not S E Z, is it? It's S I W A N. Okay. It's Welsh. Okay. Okay. So I don't know how it should be pronounced. Shwan is. Isn't that a type of Oriental dish? Shwain. I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't concentrate on the pronunciation <laughs> of the name. <laughs> Maybe it's Shwain. Like, like Damon's, but Shwain. It could be. 
I don't know. Maybe she'll maybe she'll hear that we've reviewed her film and enjoy listening to it so much that she'll email us in at blueboxpodcast at yahoo.co.uk. Your reviews are very meandering this week, have you noticed? Yes! <laughs> Not she, entirely she, my fault! Just really stick to the point. <clears throat> They've got a psychic in. Psychic hears voices from the other side. Concurrently with this story, you're being told about this... I think she's Polish. I don't think it says anywhere in the film that she's actually supposed to be Polish. Um, she is unemployed single mother on benefits, has her benefits taken away, and her boyfriend, or potential boyfriend, I don't think that's ever really spelled out either, wants to rob a footballer who lives in the middle of the countryside because this footballer owns it, owes him 40 grand and refuses to give it to him, so he decides to take matters into his own hand and uh, go and get it for himself, or so he says. And he takes her along, and he's going to give her a share of the money, which is going to, you know, save her house, save her from having to go back to Poland or whatever. Only when they get there, it turns out that this serial killer we've been hearing about <laughs> is uh, active in this area. But it's also active in the area of the radio station. And so... Two stories come together in ways that you can't possibly predict unless you're actually thinking about what you're watching. Can you uh, say because you've mentioned four people so far? Yeah, there's only about six people in stories as well. There's a Tom and Jerry cartoon where they, they hear on the radio there's a gorilla escaped. And the gorilla and just only fools and horses as well, and War of the Worlds. Oh, is it? <laughs> oh, the uh, killer doesn't turn up at the radio station. Oh, okay. Let me put it that way. All right. It. Yes, I have. Because you forced me into it. Well, but I don't think anybody's going to go and watch it based on this review, let's be honest. Don't force JR into it. <laughs> Did you not oh, enjoy it's this not nice. Did you not enjoy it? And for those people who still can't guess who it is who actually puts pen to paper and sends the Sharak Cheers emails in, Matt, is there anything you'd like to tell us? I th- you can't blame Simon for it. That's all I'm saying. It's not Simon's fault. I blame oh, Lee. This is just taking a sinister turn. <laughs> it has. Dark okay, the third right film. <laughs> yeah. The third film. Actually, the third disc, I should say, because it's not really a film. It's called Worst Fears. Have you ever heard of David McGillivray? No. Okay, in the late 60s, he was a film critic for Monthly Film Bulletin or something like that. And in the early 70s, he turned his hand to acting. And he was an extra in a bunch of films before he actually got his speaking parts and writing. And he wrote a bunch of films that never got made, but he also made a couple. Of, wrote a couple of porn films, cheap sort of. Do they get written? But <laughs> oh, this is softcore porn oh, in the nineteen seventies. Right. Have you seen them, Lee? This is <laughs> more they, akin like? to Doctor in the House. He's with... nodding. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So you you're thinking? Oh, I'm there going ah oh, affectionately. Well, there, there is a lot of affection for these films because mm. they are not titillating, but they are funny. <laughs> I love you with passion. I and also... You. No, 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 you're thinking completely the wrong thing, Lee. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm not going to have the same conversation with you as I have literally just had on so air was, with Simon because you weren't listening. Unfortunately, I had Matt talking to Yeah, you, I was like, talking to him. They're like carry-on films okay, with slightly it. fewer jokes and rather more nudity. Right. Confessions of a... Oh, 
Quite, yeah. This sort of thing. Okay. Slightly more salacious than the Confessions films, but basically in that ballpark rather than in the ballpark of the kind of porn that you're thinking about. Thinking about <laughs> Confessions of a Window Cleaner. Basically sex comedies with actual sex. So is that what this one's about? No! You're not letting me... Oh, my God. David McGillivray wrote a couple of those and then he got into writing what he really wanted to write, which was horror films. And so he's writing and acting in horror films throughout the 70s. His career peters out in the 80s. And in the mid-noughties, he makes a series of short films, each about 10 or 15 minutes long, very low budget, with a director called Jack Claxton, I think. And this DVD is essentially... Seven of these films put together as a movie-length edit with a very cheap um, sort of wraparound linking sort of segments in between mm-hmm. and sort of essentially put out as a film, but basically it's seven short films. The seven short films, six of which are written by David McKillivray, and one of which is written by Andrew Cartmel, oh. <laughs> are fantastic. They're slightly cheesy but in a good way sort of arch they're sort of old-fashioned horror in the sense of they're much they're they're like mini hammer house of horrors so if you like hammer house of horror it creates an anthology type yeah is it if you like not? not really but there's kind of there's not really a theme through the films but a lot of the films kind of have a similar character ethic in that most of the a couple of the films aren't but I'd say five of the seven films are about the lengths that people go to to um, facilitate their immorality mm. so for instance a couple of films are about devil worshippers so you know even if you take the supernatural element out what you're really talking about is people who say ooh devil and <laughs> And have to go like Wallace and Gromit. I thought more Frank Spencer. (laughs) (laughs) And have to go to certain lengths in order to facilitate their love for this kind of Mm. slightly seedy thing. So the whole film is about slightly seedy things and the lengths Mm. that people go to. to, Not all of the seven films, but probably about five of them. So although it's not a themed film, by putting in these linking segments, he makes it. It makes it feel like an amicus version of Hammer House of Horror Mm. in miniature, as it were, and. You can tell it's cheap, but the director and the script, the dialogue and the casting and the acting, everything comes together so nicely that it doesn't matter how cheap it is. You just get really involved with these stories really quickly, really involved with the characters, really involved with the situations. It's tremendous fun. They're not all that great. There's a couple of them that are slightly weaker. Uh, But, you know... Have these existed? Are these... these Short films like Andy Robinson makes. All right, so they kind of like what they've never had this kind of exposure before. Then they get uh, this was mid noughties and I think it's before these things were entirely phased out. But back in the seventies and eighties, short films would get shown before features. Mm-hmm. So short films these days tend to do festivals, mm. where you'll go to somewhere like Cannes or whatever, and in between the blockbusters that are on at the start and end of the festival which are what helps to draw in the crowds. Mm. You get lots of indie movies also being screened, and because you've managed to attract in all the crowds and all the critics, the indie movies get more exposure than they would. And then you'll have a programme of short films where you'll get 
an evening where you see half a dozen short films in a row. Calling cards. Hmm. So these directors and writers and what have you make the short films on very low budgets, attempt to get them into these sorts of screenings. So is this a format specifically for this DVD or did they... I'm not entirely sure. The copyright notice is, say, 2016, but Wikipedia seems to think it was 2007. Okay. I'm not 100% sure it wasn't put together as a film for cinematic release in 2007, maybe didn't get a cinematic release and mm. is now being released on DVD, whether it was actually put together for the DVD. The extras on the disc, of which there are loads and they're great, aren't specific to the film itself in as strong a way as you'd normally get. They kind of are, but they're also slightly more general and you could probably watch them without the film. Mm. And they're all copyrighted to 2016 as well. It looks to me like it was put together this year, but mm. I wouldn't swear to mm. that because Wikipedia seems again? to think differently. Worst fears. Worst it's fears. well worth looking out. It's not out till the start of June, but only it's available for pre-order and if it sounds like the kind of thing, or else just make a mental note and remember mm-hmm. to look it up on whatever provider you use when it comes out to stream or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely worth looking into. I will mm-hmm. be watching that. Yeah, it's fantastic, really. I mean, I gave it 7 out of 10 in the written review because, you know, it's not without issues. Like I say, a couple mm-hmm. of them are slightly weaker and it is very cheaply made and the sound and the picture quality are, let's say, variable and be nice about it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the film itself, Oh, well, the seven films itself, five of them, absolutely terrific. Mm. And I guess that'll be it for this week, then. Mm. Oh, I, Unless I, I managed like... to watch 45 Years. Oh, did you? Mm. What did you it's think on of Netflix that? now. Mm. Oh, is it? Yeah. Uh, I th- well, I, I kind of enjoyed it. It was charming and affecting and... It did that annoying thing of not resolving in the way I thought it might by the end. Well, it's not supposed to. It's supposed to leave it to you to resolve for yourself. Mm, mm. Because it asked that question halfway through. Mm. When she asked him the question about... And I said it before when I reviewed it, and I'm not going to repeat it for people who've not seen it, but 15 minutes in, she asked him the question, Mm. and the answer he gives Mm. changes everything totally and utterly. Mm. And the end of the film asks you, what would you do if you were in their shoes? I found it very frustrating, but that's my frustration, not not generated by the film. But maybe that's the point of it. Yeah, I've still got it to watch yet. I think it's a 10 out of 10 classic. Mm. I think the question it asks is so fundamental to people's lives that... And the way it asks it and then lets you answer it for yourself. Mm, mm. I think it's astonishing, really. As I say, it's on Netflix now. As is Five Years, the Bowie movie. Five Years has just come up, yeah. Which I watched third time last night. And, uh, yeah, it, it's it's frustratingly short, that's all. But, I mean, the whole point of it is just five years of Bowie's yeah. tenure. Yeah. That's most important parts of his. But um, I, I could do with a full... You know the full works. Is know. it like seventy to seventy-five, something like that? Sixty-nine to seventy-four. It just takes eras, doesn't it? Just yeah, little, little sections. Oh, of you mean five separate years rather yeah. than a five-year yeah, period? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, got five you. important years, five different mm. kind of uh, versions of himself in a way as well. And of course, Nicholas Pegg helped make that. I think. Oh, uh, going back to Worst Fears, the Mm. music throughout, and the music is great, and the music is like deliberately sort of um, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Deliberately homaging music from old horror films and from all different periods as well. So on some of them, it sort of mirrors sort of 80s type horror film music and on others, it sort of homages 40s type horror film music. It's all by Dominic Glynn. Oh, yeah. Wow. Hmm. There you go. Um, you know, he's got we a lot of ways way in, don't we? we uh, mm. Not too fast. We like a way in. <laughs> <laughs> We're like a familiar face or a name. What's the voice about? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm knocking it on the head. Unless Matt wants to tell us what was the last film you saw. I mean, we're all doing it. I saw Ivan Terrible by Sergei Eisenstein. It was very good. Three hours long. Three but, hours? But yeah, in it's two, Russian. two parts in Russian. Oh, of course but, it is. It's two parts, isn't it? So Star, Stalin approved of the first part because he associated himself with Ivan. But the second part he banned because Eisenstein... <laughs> revealed that Ivan was this power mad kind of brutal dictator did Stalin, so Stalin look at the title of the film the, Ivan the Terrible oh, part no, one no, but, but he'd, he'd commissioned the films but it's nice it's 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 really stylized. it's like Brian Blessed would have played every part really theatrical it's really well shot because it's Eisenstein so all the all the scenes are really well crafted and there's shadows and there's huge sets and there's close-ups with deep focus. So it's really nice to look at, but it's completely ridiculous. It's absolutely <coughs> absolutely mental. The second part in particular is sort of bat squeak crazy completely. But great, great. And it's got it's got a woman in it. The, the it's main, got a woman in it. The main villain is is uh is a woman. And she wears a headdress, but she looks just like Terry Jones. And to start with, <laughs> I couldn't tell it was a woman. I, I thought it was a. I thought it was a man. But oh, I think you've been a, a very naughty it's boy. It's exactly that. It's really, really strange film. So you should watch it, but only watch it once. Well, no, you can watch it twice. As long as the first time you watch it is part one, and the second time is part two. Yeah, yeah, I watched both. Excellent. Right next week, then victory of the Daleks. Um, with a Dalek, uh, as long as everything goes to plan. Oh, because of course, people listening to this will remember from a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about another plan that still hasn't happened. But more on that when it does. <laughs> um, Welcome to my per- life. That's perfectly clear. <laughs> Until then, I was Matt. I was Simon. I was Lee. And I was JR. And we'll speak again soon.